opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back. We are on day three of Sagebrush, and uh, I know the surroundings are a little more familiar than we'd like. We hope next year to be in Las Vegas soaking up some of that 70 degree weather. I may have to call on somebody who's there for a weather report <clears throat> at some point today, but we're looking for another great day. We had just a excellent time last night, a lot of fun during our auction. I thank all of you who attended our auction and were able to purchase an item. Congratulations. We thank you for that. And uh, we were prepared for our last day and uh, this morning, we've got a moderator who's going to do a great job for us. I think you're a little familiar with her. You may have heard our introduction for her yesterday, but uh, Linda Allison is with us, and Linda is over there glowing in the corner, and she is ready to roll. So with that, we say good morning, Linda, and the floor is yours. Good morning, everybody, and um, hopefully I don't tank on this uh, nautical adventure here. First up, we are going to be having a panel discussion on recent changes in cafeterias and full-service snack bars. I hope I am understanding correctly. We have three of our panelists are present. Alinda, we have. would you like to have the door prizes first? Yes, ma'am. That's a wonderful idea. Thank you. <laughs> okay. For door prizes, we have Anthony DeGraca from Florida. All right, Kim, Anthony. <laughs> Kim Venable from Louisiana. Yeah, Kim. And Shirley Smart. From oh, my gosh. Yay. You're from Florida. All right. Wow. Banner Day from Florida. Thank you, Artis. Sorry, I was kind of doing it backwards. I was introducing the panel and then going to have you do that because I, I know we're still waiting for one of the panelists. So I'm sorry for doing it backwards. The three guests that we currently have present are Patrick Martin out of Florida with Live Better Incorporated. We have Lonnie. Harmon out of Iowa from Iowa Vending Cafe. And then we have Mr. William J. Finley, also out of Florida, Chief Bureau uh, Services for the Blind, uh, Florida Department of Education. And uh, as I said before, this topic of discussion is going to be recent changes in cafeterias and full-service snack bars and how each of these entities have, I guess, uh, adapted to the changes. Is there a preference on who goes first? This is Bill Finley. I can start. And, yeah, the, the whole thing is a real mouthful, so you did, you did fine. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we have a bureau within our Division of Blind Services, and we're a part of the Florida Department of Education. So there's a whole lot of going with that. It's interesting, Patrick Martin is here, and he's going to be able to follow up with more of the nuts and bolts of what I'm really going to start with. Prior to the pandemic, for the, some of the same reasons we're going to talk about, we were already moving towards micro markets because the consumers that we serve, which primarily are in government buildings, as the millennials are kind of moving in and some of the other folks are moving out, we're seeing a change in what, what people want. The pandemic has absolutely pushed this even further. Now, we had a couple of micro-market projects that we were starting before the pandemic, but the host agencies postponed them because there was nobody in the building. 
So there was no need to push putting them in. But let me give you a little background. Okay. And I'm going to talk fast because I know we have, you know, a short amount of time. Everybody needs to have their say. At the moment, we have nine micro markets. One just opened this week. Patrick will talk to you about that. <laughs> a 10th is scheduled to open in March in Miami and an 11th in April here in Tallahassee. We are planning on four additional micro markets by the end of the summer or early fall. That would bring us to a grand total of 15. And I can see a couple of others even after that, based on circumstances. Now, at the moment, one of those that we currently have, which is nine, is a standalone, meaning it's large enough and serving enough employees or customers to support a blind vendor sufficiently. That's what our goal is. Of the other 14, we're expecting that when most of the effects of the pandemic are passed and you have whoever's going to be back in the building working will be there, we expect that four of the others that we currently have will be standalones. Now, we might have to combine two smaller ones that are next to one another or nearby each other to make a facility. We will determine that based on what time brings us. Now, a number of these were prior a snack bar or a cafeteria. And um, a couple of these we did not have, but now we have them as a micro market. Some of these were snack bars a long time ago, converted to vending only, and now we have them as a micro market. So it has provided some really good opportunities for us in our program. What are the benefits? of micromarkets? Well, there's some pretty obvious ones, and let me emphasize what some of these are. Number one, and this is a huge one, when you consider the environment of our country where you just can't find anybody to work or you can't find anybody to work for less than $14, $15, $16 an hour. This is why I'm putting this number one, less staff. Less staff required, allowing more profit to the vendor and less headaches for the vendor. That's huge. You can take a place that had a cafeteria or a snack bar with three, four, five employees, and you're bringing it down to the vendor, maybe one employee or even a part-time employee, and they can handle that facility. That's obvious, isn't it, what the benefit is there? A micro-market affords the opportunity for many more products to be available to the consumer. Fresh products, healthy items, prepackaged items, personal care items, small electronics, greeting cards, large size products. And I don't mean like large size chips that you can put in a vending machine. I mean products that are so large they don't fit in a traditional vending machine. In your micro market, you have reach-in coolers and freezers. You have open-air coolers. You have shelves with products that are neatly stacked and organized. You need to have a great self-serve coffee machine where someone pays either by swiping a card or you use a barcode where they're swiping that barcode there at the kiosk. But going back to today's consumer, what's happened? Today's consumer is more health conscious than ever before. They are more skeptical of products that they're purchasing 
and putting into their bodies. The micro market allows someone to pick up an item. They can read every ingredient from the label. They can feel how heavy it is. They can take a good look at it. You cannot do that with a vending machine. They can take that product. They can put it back. They can pick up another one and do the very same thing before they make that purchase. It just gives some folks a greater level of confidence that they're making a purchase that they really want to make and that this is what they really want. In Florida, we are looking at buildings, ideally with five to 700 people in them. That may not always be possible. And we do have some which are a part of a vending route where you have a smaller number of people, maybe 300, 350 people. And sometimes you may use the micro market as a bargaining chip to get to acquire other vending locations because people like this concept. It is a small market, like a small convenience store, open air kind of a thing. And that is very appealing to a number of people. Now, let me say some things that you really need to have if you're going to do this. The host agency does need to agree to security cameras And this is not Big Brother. You don't want to go into it like that. But security cameras present, maybe with a monitor and maybe with signs up with that say, hey, you're, you know, you're, there are security cameras going on here. (laughs) It just helps maybe to deter some people from taking something without checking out because typically the micro markets are self-checkout. We do have one. Because of the agreement where there is someone at a register, that's per the agreement. But most micro markets are designed to be self-checkout. And so you want to be able to have that just that little extra level of security to kind of help assure that people aren't walking off with stuff. At the same time, if a micro market's a part of a vending route, obviously a vendor can't be there all the time because they have other duties. But I would also like to say... I would encourage vendors to be present at micro markets as much as possible, just to help them run smoothly, answer questions, help people with kiosks, uh, make sure things are stocked. And also their presence or the presence of an employee helps to add that extra level of security. And a lot of times, one of the advantages of a micro market are the different kinds of products you can have. And these products may be costly. We have a micro market in the building that I'm in. And he's got a small electronics down there. He's got some other things that he had a a Christmas wall where he had a number of items related to, to the Christmas and holiday season. And they're fairly costly. So you want to be sure that, you know, no one's walking off with a $10, $15 item if you can help it. And I'll have to add this too. He's selling some healthy food items, very healthy, again, geared for that healthy, conscious person that are $12, $13, and they're being purchased. But you don't want somebody walking off with those. So anyway, you want to have um, as much security um, as you possibly can. Kiosks, if possible, should be hardwired and paid for by the host agency. That's not always possible. We as the agency make purchases of the kiosks, but the ongoing fees that are related to that are on the vendor. And um, the selected vendor for a micro market must 
to be comfortable with technology. Patrick will be talking to you about that here in a few minutes or in a minute. There is a lot of technology with kiosk on the back end, and they're just going to have to feel pretty good with it. But that's basically what I wanted to say. Um, and before I turn it over to Patrick to follow up with some of the nuts and bolts, um, are there any questions that I might answer for anyone at this time? I know I went fast, but I know where time is of the essence. I am not seeing any hands currently. Okay. I have a couple just... of questions after I get that. I'll wait till it's finished, and then I have a couple of questions. Sure, and that's fine, too. Yeah, however you want to do it. I'm through then with my portion of this, and as I said, I think using Patrick next would be perfect because he is really into this right now. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. Just taking off from what Bill was saying, uh, the history over the past 20, 25 years in the industry, everyone has gone from your sit-down meal with a server uh, more towards a quick-serve model. And the whole reason of that is twofold. One, to shrink your labor and your labor expenses. Number two, to shrink your inventory items while still having a varied menu. The quick serve model basically had its peak about a decade ago, 10, maybe 12 years ago. And the next evolution is the micromarket. And the micromarket, again, uses anywhere from zero to one employees. And therefore, your, your labor is phenomenal compared to running a full restaurant. And second of all, your, your inventory items you can have such a variety of items, but you don't have early or quick expiration dates. And your, your, your options for the items that you sell are varied. You can be selling half gallons of milk. You can sell <laughs> rolls of paper towels. Uh, the point is, is uh, the main thing is we all know that sodas and candy bars and, and chips are our main sellers, but we need to get people into the micromarket. So we have other items that have absolutely no expiration date that bring people into the micromarket. On the micromarket itself, we have uh, basically three different models. You have model A, which is uh, all the way up to almost uh, incomparable to a convenience store. Model B would be slightly scaled down uh, where you don't have as many products, but definitely much more than a vending machine. And then uh, your model uh, model C would be something that is just barely a step above a vending machine, but has a few extra products. Both model B and, and model A, you also have the abilities with modern technology to integrate a quick serve restaurant where you can do a two-hour breakfast or a two-hour lunch. No fryers, no hoods or anything. The convection ovens can now fit on a countertop and they don't require hoods. And with the, the types of toasters out there, something similar to uh, firehouse subs, you can do the hot subs very quickly and easily with one full-time employee or, or two part-time employees. So the, the model, you have a lot of flexibility with the market, micro market with what you can do, and you can do it with very little space. That's the one good thing. And as Bill said, technology is key. Um, one of the major points uh, with Micromarket that you have to pay attention and be very diligent on is setting up your inventory process and your restocking process. And the software that you use, you need to be very comfortable with it. And there's a variety of softwares out there, and as well as software companies. Uh, most of them do the job, but uh, we found so far, we, we're now with uh, two different companies. One is Three Square Marketplace. And that's uh, the one that I'm very familiar with. I've 
just currently opened up two micro markets that are not mine. I'm assisting the operator, uh, Colton Knight, uh, that has those two locations. And we're using uh, three square marketplace. I'll be opening up a micro market in Tallahassee at the Southwood CCOC building. And that'll be using three square marketplace. But we've also used par level. And one of the main things one that you want to look at when you're choosing which software company to use for your POS and your kiosk is the accessibility features and three square marketplace seems to be the front runner. Um, and they are all over the whole country now. They are in DC, they're in Hawaii, they're in California, they're in New York, they're in Connecticut, they're in Wisconsin. And the BEP program is a, a large percentage of in the different states of their customer base. And because of that, they've actually brought in people that are uh, 100% blind, as well as those that have some vision to help consult and work as a liaison with concerns on improving their software and accessibility. What I found to be extremely helpful is their inventory system that they've de- designed, and especially for restocking, because one of the major concerns with micromarkets is your loss, your theft. And at first, I, I found it not to be the best, and that's that would turned out to be simple user error. And once we became more acclimated with the software, it works like a dream. Uh, I can tell you right now at the Department of Transportation Micromarket, we're having a 1% or less loss due to theft. And if there is a theft, we catch it almost immediately. Uh, We've just opened here at the DPVR building. And from day one, uh, because we worked out all the kinks on the user error, Uh, We are showing a zero loss and we've now been open for three days, but it's very easy to track your loss, track your inventory. And Colton, who is the the proprietor here, he's 100% blind. I have Stargard's disease, so I don't have central vision, uh, just peripheral. And the two of us are able to navigate not just the kiosk, but In the back of the house, the software is very accessible for both of us. For working the inventory in the front of the house, I'm able to use a tablet to go ahead and spot check at any point in time very quickly on any of the items and can track something if something's missing very quickly. It integrates very well with our security system, too, and the cameras. I strongly suggest that if you're doing a micromarket that you hang up monitors And not any small monitors, but hang up decent-sized monitors that show the camera views. You don't have to show all the camera views, but it lets the clientele know that, hey, they are being monitored. And the kiosks themselves also have cameras built into them. So as someone's ringing something up, they see that they're being recorded. So a lot of safety features are are involved, and that's that's very good to deter theft. But again, the, the inventory process, even if you're not using a qualified very, very solid POS system like Three Square Marketplace, you need to set up your your tracking spreadsheets, which most of the BEP classes, uh, at least here in Florida, uh, train us very well on. It's one of the most important things. You're not too concerned with spoilage, mainly because you have good expiration dates on the products that you're selling. But again, when it comes to theft, you have to track your your restock and and keep a a good, strong, diligent effort on your inventory controls. With that being said, the other aspect that I really wanted to tie into is choosing your products. Uh, Again, we're carrying the typical vending fare. However, uh, we get to really expand on things that you don't fit in a vending machine. 
Mm-hmm. And with that, some of the micro markets are, are in competition with with uh, vending machines. So you need to have fare that's going to say, hey, come over to my market and purchase something over here instead of just walking out your your, your office door and, and grabbing a soda at a machine. So in, in the future, that's that's what you really want to look at and focus on is products that are going to bring people into your store. And one thing you want to consider when you're doing that is even though you may have products on your shelves that take up some space, and sometimes that's a good thing, especially in uh, in the times we're in right now when we're, there's shortage of products, you always want to have something that's on the shelves. And a micro market, nothing makes it look worse than empty shelves. So have products that you know you're not going to sell a lot of, but products that are going to catch someone's eye and cause them to come into your micro market so that you can sell that extra bag of chips or that extra soda or that extra candy bar. That's what's really going to increase your sales. Um, and as, as Bill said also, fresh food is, is absolutely a necessity. And one of the obstacles that we're facing here, opening up so many micro markets, is we're looking for other purveyors in order to get a variety of different fresh foods. And one of our difficulties is finding a consistent product that they're able to supply uh, a weekly basis. And so what we're thinking about and starting to develop is opening up one of the micro markets to service an area that will have a production kitchen Mm. to produce those grab-and-go items, your salads, your wraps, your sandwiches. And kind of what we're looking at is in the near future, looking to open up a, a micro market that will also have a kitchen attached that can do production, not just for itself, but also for the other micro markets. And a concept that we're toying around with at the moment is if you string together a series of uh, a couple smaller micro markets with one of the larger ones, and you actually have a micro market route instead of a vending route. Yeah. And then if you have three or four micro markets, a couple small and one large, then that third or fourth one would, would definitely have an attached kitchen just to do simple production, not for uh, as a snack bar, but just production for the grab and go items. And with that, that that still keeps your labor low. You can do production twice a week for the micro markets, distribute uh, on Mondays and Wednesdays because typically we're in state and federal buildings, so we only have Monday through Friday business. And even if you're using Boar's Head, which has a very uh, short uh, lifespan, you're always going to have fresh product Monday and Wednesday that has a three-day shelf life and you're set. So that, that in my eyes, is, is the future of the micro market, is the, the three different models inventory and cost controls for loss, and then also uh, a possibility of expansion, adding a production facility for your area. With that, that's about all I have at the moment. But so far, the micro markets that we've opened, uh, they've really been doing well and they're easy to run. The key is low labor and very uh, large amount of inventory items that have long expiration dates or no expiration date. And let me just add, what Patrick was saying there, we do use one of our blind vendors who still has a cafeteria. The building population there is not so great right now, but about three blocks away from here, uh, their cafeteria has been providing fresh made sandwiches and salads and parfaits and chili, things like that uh, on a regular basis for this micro market in the building I'm in, in another building in town that is a part of a route 
Um, and then when the federal prison was opened, uh, there was a food machine there. They were providing food for that. So we are still using one of our vendors. So the business here benefits that vendor as well. Now, we do also have a couple of other sources not far from here for some of the um, other products, especially those that are really geared for healthy only. I mean, very healthy <laughs> type Keto products. Keto boxes and protein yeah, boxes. Yeah, I'm kind of laughing because I don't partake of that. I'm more of the, <laughs> <laughs> our vendor's food. I'm good with that. But, you know, people are paying unbelievable prices for some of this stuff, which the healthier stuff costs more, but people are paying for it. So you want to have sources nearby that you can work with. And uh, I wish we could get better pricing. That's something we got to work on. But anyway, I can tell you right now here at the DPBR building that just opened about a third of the sales have been those healthy items from a, a company called social kitchen. And those are the keto boxes and the fresh salads and so forth. And it's been about a third of the sales now. It's a third of the sales because they are higher priced items, but they are moving. Are you guys open for a question or two? Absolutely. Great, uh, Scott here. And uh, I also have a micro market. And I I guess I got to thinking about you talking about your. Actually, uh, we have one. There's one more speaker to go, Scott, before questions. Um, Lonnie hasn't been able to speak yet. Basically, I'm going to agree with the other two guys there that. uh, we just got into uh, the micro markets in uh, Iowa just within the last year and a half, two years. We've had some that were pretty much test areas, but uh, the inventory, uh, the cost controls and all that are so much better as long as you keep up with them. Uh, on the backside, we're using uh, a lot of uh, par level and uh, they're not blind guy friendly let me tell you um they need to be more in that way now three squared i don't know i i've never dealt with them we have another vendor that uh has uh dealt with them and uh uh, that is my only concern is is uh the accessibility on these uh, kiosks and things uh for blind guys because myself i i use uh the windows large print and uh i have to have pretty much a backup crew my two girls pretty much do most of the computer work. I can get in there and I can do it, and I make sure that I understand it. But as far as accessibility, Par Level does not have it. But as far as the micro market goes, my sales have increased by probably about 50%, and in some areas more than that. But uh, I'm in a main branch of the post office in Des Moines, Iowa, and it runs 24-7. And wow. it has just been a godsend for them. They love it. Customers, that's my top priority is my customers, uh, product quality, and keeping track of things so that I make pretty good living at it. I'm going to end there with, I can't offer much more than the other two guys have. I mean, that's pretty much uh, the gist of it. A lot of a lot great information. You have a, like a great location having a 24-hour uh, post office. That's that's a wonderful location. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's a benefit, let me tell you. I can believe it. I'll ask a question. Now we've had all our presenters here, and then we'll have some audience participation as well. But I, I'm curious for actually now since we brought Iowa in, I guess the same question can go to, to you folks as well. Uh, I've heard you talk about the the front of the store, and and I do have a micro market as well. Do your facilities have uh, storage in the back of the house, and what are you outfitting that with? Do you have a, a freezer and a refrigerator unit in the back, and 
Absolutely. Yeah. You really need to have storage on site. You need to have those freezers and coolers in the back. If you're going to be considering making fresh food on site, which we could in this building, although we've chosen not to, you've got to have the the three compartment sink and the hand wash sink and so on and the, the table and all that. But absolutely, that is, Patrick, what would you say to that? Same thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Storage and refrigeration and freezer are essential. Now, granted, the front of the house will have your reach-in cooler and reach-in freezer, but you have to have your backup somewhere. So it's essential to have back-of-the-house storage for freezer and refrigeration. Yeah, and then you have your your dry goods storage, too, for your soft drinks and chips and, and things of that nature, too. So that is another part that has to be factored in when considering a micromarket. But a lot of times, as I mentioned, if there was a snack bar there or a cafeteria there already, at some point in time, you likely have the storage space already there. You may just need to kind of fix things up a bit. I'm going to agree. As far as back of the house and and storage, you you just about have to have it now. We do have a person that has a route of micro markets. And he does everything from his warehouse. So you've got mm-hmm. to have that freezer stock for your chips and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, you've got to have it. All right. Thank you. I have a quick question before we get off audience. Pardon my lack of knowledge of micro markets. I've, I've been in a couple, but number one, I was not aware that they were designated by size. So you mentioned that there was an A, B, and a C. Is their ranking determined by number of products or square footage or what makes them that? And how do you know which one to choose or is that up to the site where you're putting the location? There's no official designation. Uh, It's just kind of how we look at it. And it all depends on the building that you're going into, what they're looking for. And if they're looking for something that's uh, a little more than vending, yeah, you don't have to put in a, a full large micro market. You can just have a, a reaching cooler for drinks and, and some snacks and a couple shelves. It, it's really up to the building that you're going into on what size. And I was just using the analogy of an A, B, or C to give reference to what the possibilities are. Gotcha. Thank you. Do we have any hands up from the audience as of yet? As of right now, we do not. Okay, well, I can wear out the um, bizarre questions if you like. Um, <laughs> sure. Another question that I had was uh, to do with them, um, well, approaching a site for potentially going to a micro market scenario. Is there a different approach on how you sell the idea, excuse me, to them? Or is it same basic approach? And are you finding that they're more receptive to the micro market than the machines? Um, or is there any difference? This is Bill, and I would say the approach would be some of the things we've talked about, especially, Patrick pointed out, the fresh products. If people are wanting healthy, I mean, I know there's healthy snacks. I I get that, and there's healthy beverages. But if somebody is looking to have lunch, the fact that you can get something fresh, fresh made, either that you made in your hybrid micromarket or that you purchased from a nearby location and and then brought over, that's a huge selling point right there. The fact that you can put hands on that product and take a good look at it before making that purchase, those are all selling points for micromarkets. 
Um, a lot of people building management and even consumers are not, they're not as enamored with uh, frying and grilling and cooking and all of that, especially building management people, because all of that, no matter what you do, it creates its own problems. So this eliminates mm-hmm. that. So they're really happy, you know, hey, we're not going to be doing that, but we've got some great stuff that's either pre-made and pre-packaged and put in the microwaves. A lot of people are receptive to this change from the traditional to something like this. It just seems very fresh and clean and appealing to a lot of folks. Dan, simply, just one quick comment, Linda. Yes, sir. Um, I guess I'd like to, I really appreciate all the information Bill and Patrick and everybody brought to the table here, but micromarkers can be used in a variety of situations. An example would be you know, when they first started out a few years back, the theory was you needed five to 700 people minimum to get one, make it productive. That's not necessarily true. Um, I had one in a local county jail and it had 70 people in it. You know, a county jail system there, it's a very captive audience. It was just for the security people, but uh, the inmates had no access to it. And But the security could not leave the facility. So they either had to bring in or buy what was there. And so you put in a mini, mini micromarket. Right. And basically, mm-hmm. with all the back-end telemetry uh, you have available nowadays through all of them, whether it's um, you know three-square par-level Yoke, uh, Avante, 365, they're all good units. And you just basically drop off a box of stuff and it works really ideal in a mini micro, mini mini micro market, is if you have a vending route, and uh, so you already have the products, and you just if you're driving by and uh, you know, it say it's a building that you haven't been servicing in the past because there wasn't enough people with vending, you didn't want to put, you know, a soda machine and a snack machine that cost it, you know, fifteen thousand dollars in there it wasn't worthwhile. But in mini market, all you need is a kiosk and a couple of cameras. And uh, it's extra income for that 10-minute pull off to the side of the road and carry a box full of stuff in because you pre-box your stuff the evening before, the morning before you leave. So there's use of micro-markets and then is really expanding. And what Patrick is um, talking about, too, is you're bordering out of the micro-market into the pantry system where you have the larger size items where people can have a grab-and-go. And even like the 12-inch or 15-inch frozen pizzas you can have, in uh, the liter or two liter bottles of soda, but they can grab it at, on their way out of work and take it home and feed their family. Because we got such a fast-paced society now. The opportunities are just endless. With uh, It's no different than your gas station convenience store. Basically, you can operate the same way. And on-site storage is ideal, but uh, it's not a precursor if you already have a vending route. You already have then your own uh, storage in your particular warehouse. I just wanted to add that, and I really appreciate uh, the fantastic information and the uh, on-hands experience that uh, all these gentlemen have uh, offered us and their success with uh, converting to micro-markets. Uh, so they just um, are really the thing that's going to save our program, I think, here through this pandemic. If I, if I may, just real quick, with the three-square marketplace, our kiosks are able to take change bills and also give back change in bills besides the credit card, debit card, and account. So that's just a nice added feature with three-square market. If I could interrupt for yeah. just a second, this is your host. Kevin had his hand raised in the audience. He has since put it down, but if he still wants to 
say something and then we have other hands up as well. So do you want to take those questions or move on to the next presentation? From a, from a voice of the next panel, please do. Go ahead. We have a telephone number, area code 901, ending in 710. I had a micro market, and it was, you know, done by, by the market, uh, market place. It was, and I had some problems with theft and stuff, and it was in a state building. And I had problems with you and the camera. I talked to micro market about it, and... I had some trouble with that. So can somebody address that issue? When it comes to theft, the easiest and best way is as you're doing your restock, your software will actually tell you as long as you have accurate inventory of your warehouse and your storefront, it'll tell you exactly what you need to restock. When you go to restock, and if it's telling you you need six items out of 12 to reach your par level because you've sold six items, and all of a sudden you turn around and you need more than six items, that's telling you that something's missing. If something's missing, you need to then go to your surveillance software and you need to pull those records from the last time and you need to pull your sales report and it'll tell you whether or not it's been sold. If it's not been sold, then it's been stolen. You then go through your surveillance video. What's that? That's why I had a problem viewing it. That's why I had a problem viewing the camera. Microsoft could not help me do that. Oh, so you had a problem with the video that you couldn't access the video? Right. That's a big problem. That yeah. needs to be addressed right away because oh. without the video, you have no proof. Who installed your video? Is it a separate company or was it the company that you run your Micromarket software with? Okay, so that needs to be addressed immediately. Your cameras need to be adjusted. If you don't have if you don't have video that's recording sales at the kiosk as well as who's pulling stuff off the shelves, then you have no proof to right. file charges with. Right. Well, I, I I no longer have the market, but we still have it in the program here. But I just want to address the issue in case somebody else has that same issue. Well, that will always be an issue with theft, and you have to have a video surveillance. You know, if you're going to do a micro market, if you don't, you're going to lose product. So you say I can reach yeah. somebody can reach out to micro market and they can walk them through to have to do that. Is that what you're saying? You'll have the surveillance feed that you have to go through yourself, and or you have to hire a company that monitors your your cameras for you. One of the two. For people in your building, yeah, I know here, if we've had to review something, the vendor, you know, there's people in the building that can assist with reviewing those uh, recordings. It's not been a big problem, I can tell you. And occasionally when it has been, somebody will say, yeah, well, I know that person. And, you know, a lot of times, even if they were our approach later, it was like, oh, my gosh, I, I forgot to pay. I mean, it wasn't even intentional. Sometimes people get busy yeah. and forget. Yeah. You don't want to accuse somebody of something horrific when maybe they, they just happened to forget to pay that day. I know I'm not answering the question that was brought up. I'm just saying you may need, you're going to need some assistance to go through and check the recording. When it comes to um, shrinkage, you know, that's the term that the micro market use. They don't use the word theft or the right. shrinkage. And that's kind of, uh, but when it comes to shrinkage, I think like Bill said, you have to make sure you have all your uh, ducks in a row before you make any accusations. Right. Because um, that'll alienate not only that person, but you know, they'll tell 27 other people. One example, I, and I have always, when my micromarkets do a monthly manual inventory, and one thing I found is that I thought I had some shrinkage going on. I'm going to use the Skittles as an example. And I had like five flavors of different flavors of Skittles. 
in there by request from particular customers. And we'd come with a dozen bags of wild berry Skittles and they'd all be there. But then all the original Skittles would be gone. So in, usually it's, you develop your micro market like you do a C-store, grocery store, or mass merchandiser. You put all the stuff you want to be fast selling, you put it near your kiosk, near your checkout point, you know, uh, to catch people's eye on their way out and you grab something. What was happening was I had people grabbing a bag of um, uh, original Skittles and then they get to the checkout kiosk and they say, oh, I like a wild berry. So they put the original bag, they knew they were the same price, even though they already scanned it. And they put one back and grabbed the other one, and it was just a very honest mistake. And you will find people that um, will, you know, like Bill said, you know, they just simply forget. Somebody comes in and talks to them, they forget to go through the checkout process. Or maybe if they have three items, they may only check out one item. So always make sure you have uh, your, um, your evidence before you approach anyone. And even if, when you have your evidence, approach them in a very nonchalant manner. Yes. Okay, um, Kevin. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank everyone. Is it Bill, Patrick, and Lonnie? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Are you all have a facility open to the public? I'll speak for Florida. And in terms of a self-checkout kiosk, at this point in time, we don't really have any that are that are open to the public. Okay. Um, I'm not saying that you couldn't, but we do not at this time. So most of these facilities are located in a, say, closed environment? Yes. Iowa, we're uh, pretty much, uh, if it's only accessible to the employees, that's it, Uh, not the public. Is there some way that each employee is like, uh, when they go into the, the market, they have like a badge or something that is scanned that you know, your system would know that that particular employee's in there uh, making a purchase, or is just you all rely on the camera and uh, and the honor system. Yes, we would we would rely on the latter, the honor system, and the presence of the cameras. Okay. And we also have one in the federal building that uh, they're required to go into the break room. They have to use their badge, so it gives you time, date, and everything. And we can work with the building management to access those records. Okay. Well, that's all I have. Again, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Any more questions or has that got everybody? We got everyone. All right. Next up is is our illustrious president, Scott Egan, and a gentleman named Jerry Saladana discussing the uh, tips for getting universities and colleges into Randolph-Shepard program. I'm just going to summarize other issues related to college campuses um, and food trucks, etc. So, sorry, my, my internet is down, so I don't have any backup. I'm going from memory. Is everyone present for, uh, yes. for the Every, discussion? Yes, here because today it is me, myself, and I. So, <laughs> oh. Okay. Yes. oh, that's the one you said was sick. Okay. Okay, my, well, I will torture you properly with questions then. Okay. okay. My co-person, I called him this morning, and he has been very sick for the last number of days, and he apologizes. He can't be with us. Jerry is also here from Minnesota. He runs a large state college, 
And uh, he's also got some rest areas and other things going on. I think he believe he's also has a technical community college in his area. And I think he's got a, a vet facility. So he apologizes for not being here. I am going to ask our past president, Dan Sipple, to join me for just a few minutes because Dan also has had college experience. Uh, I believe he was at a college in Wisconsin. So I've asked him to join me. And we'll, uh, since we kind of carved into our time for this panel a little bit, we'll kind of speed it up just a bit. And uh, Dan, if I, I say something that you want to cue on, please go ahead. But uh, I, I'll speak to for my own situation. I am in a community technical college here in the Twin Cities. And uh, this is my third college I've been to. I started actually started my career at a community college in uh, rural Minnesota. I then moved to a metropolitan area and had a four-year college. And a, uh, I guess they converted. They're now a community technical college. And here in the Twin Cities, I'm now at a community technical college. Last year was uh, difficult at best at the college. Let's just say I'm glad that 2020-21 season has passed. <laughs> the college is doing much better 21-22 year. They've reopened the community college side. They were down to just offering two classes in the building the entire semester. And they were on one in the building, not even close to my vending machines. Uh, the technical side, they had classes because it's all hands-on. But they were shortened classes. They bring in folks for just a short period of time, and then they'd kind of shoo them right back out. So uh, there weren't people mingling around. It was basically kind of quiet for the most part. Um, this year, it's looking more normal. They are currently holding classes on both campuses. It's been better. We're not to where we were, but it's better than where we were last year. And uh, I have added some card readers and tried to enhance some of the things that we're doing. Sales are better. I don't have the experience of having a ton of competition. In fact, uh, they do have food service on both campuses. However, they're both closed. They uh, don't have enough employees to uh, furnish those food services. So I'm the only game in town right now. So that's been a benefit for me. But uh, I know that's been a, a issue for folks is having some competition on campuses, I guess uh, I just wanted to address briefly. Um, first off, let me go back just a bit. And if your state does not have community technical colleges or four-year colleges, I'd encourage you to work with your state legislature to uh, get into those facilities because uh, even though we've kind of been through some better times here as of late, I see possibilities for things turning around. I'm, I'm even willing to bet next year is going to be bigger than this year. Uh, they're, they're on a, a good recovery system. Let's face it, we, we've got to have people educated to make the wheels turn here. Yeah, I encourage folks to look into getting into those colleges. For those of us facing challenges, I, like I said, I haven't had to deal with that, but I've heard of other colleges who've had folks coming in. And the one thing I'll say about all of that is if you have a strong relationship with administration, um, if you point out those things, usually you're going to have administration stand behind you and say, yeah, we really you know, need to work through this. That's not always the case, but more than likely it could be the case. So, um, Dan, do you have anything to add to that real quick? Um, just a little bit of my experiences. I had one of the um, 22 campuses in the University of Wisconsin, and it was beneficial and fruitful and easy to service. And without cashless, you know, they, usually they run debit card systems, your sales would be minimal because uh, students just don't carry it for the last 20 years have really 
eliminated carrying coin and currency. So the cashless is uh, critical in that. But the biggest thing is, well, the pandemic when the universities went to all virtual classes, really all the academic buildings basically, you know, shut the vending machines off. And, um, but then in the dormitories where some students uh, had jobs or whatever and had to stay on campus, they, they really were quite proficient. One interesting thing uh, that happened and which makes them um, very open to um, micromarkets now on campus, which in the past was unheard of because of the public access, but during the Me Too movement, the campuses in here in Wisconsin, I'm sure nationwide, went to a lockdown situation where they um, they have their, you know, it's all electronic keys on the doors, on the dorm rooms now and stuff in the academic buildings. And so they put that on the exterior doors. You have to have pass key to get into any building, which kind of eliminates access to them. So micromarkets are uh, more amenable in a college setting uh, than they ever been if they are in a... Um, you know, secure, high security situation, if they move to a high security situation to avoid all these other things that have been going on in society lately. And so it's something you don't want to overlook just because it is a campus. Uh, Micromarkets um, are really the thing to do and uh, you can offer because students, you have such a variety of students and variety of desires and tastes that you can offer them so much more um, wider variety of products and which helps um, sales all over and then you can offer your um your health and beauty aids so much more readily and because they're more accessible otherwise for vending your very limited uh, access to health and beauty aids and feminine hygiene products and stuff like that you can put all that into in you know, all the birth control items and everything else that goes along with college activities you, you put that into a micromarket uh, which and sometimes you got to be quite creative to put into a vending machine Universities are very advantageous, and uh, they're a lot of fun to, just to see the energy, just being on, working on campus, to see the energy from all these students, and you kind of look back and say, I wish I had that energy. I used to have that energy, but I don't have that energy anymore. But it just it helps keep you young by uh, being around the students and, stuff, uh, and socializing with them somewhat. So there's just so many advantages um, you know, to campus, and profitability is tremendous. You because know, all you have to do is compete with the convenience store because they're usually the only ones within walking range of a campus. Um, usually your larger grocery stores and stuff where things are reduced price, them are considerably distance away from the campus. Uh, my campus, you know, we just had 10,000 students and 1,800 staff, so it was a medium-sized campus. But you got your larger campuses far more productive than what mine were. Dan and Scott, thank you. That was some good information, and I'm assuming we didn't have any uh, Q&A on that one. So are we ready to go to the next? Yeah, so let's, next let's, roll on. Yeah, let's roll on to the next subject, and certainly we can, anybody has any questions later on, reach out to us, and certainly we can answer them and try and help, whatever whatever we can do. So yeah, we'll just roll on to the next presenter, which I'm okay. sure he's probably waiting. Okay, I just didn't want to jump again if there was something... But like I said, my internet's down, so I'm just kind of twitching with memory here. So the next thing I'm very interested in, because I am not a golfer. I know nothing about it at all, ever. I can name off some golfers, but that doesn't mean anything. I don't know the difference between a bogey or an eagle. It doesn't matter. I I mean, it does matter. I don't know. But anyway, we have Phil Hubbard from the 
U.S. Blind Golfers Association, uh, who's going to talk uh, to us about the, the program and getting involved and its role in showing that blind people can do more than be than work and not. And uh, I know that there are a lot of people in ACB that are in the Blind Golfers Association. I believe our president is, or at least I know he, he golfs. So I, I think this will be awesome. So, Mr. Hubbard, you are on. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I do appreciate that. I believe that my president, Greg Hooper, who is the president of the USBGA, is also on this call. Yes, I am, Phil. How are you doing, Greg? I'm good. Um, We are a big golf organization established here in the United States. We are proud to say that we are the oldest. uh, We call, I lost my whole word there, Greg. We are the oldest adaptive golf association in America. We've been around for about a year now. Uh, we celebrated our 75th national tournament in October. We are individuals and stand up all across the country. I was fortunate enough to be able to join the USBGA back in 2002 and then started playing in 2004. We are a blind group. We basically have blind golf tournaments around the country and then occasionally get to go play around the world. We um, have three site categories. Basically, we have a B category, which is both or B2 category for those who have some vision between 600 to 800, three category, which is from 200 to 600. We, like I said, we play by the rules of golf, uh, signed by the Golf Association, USGA, and by the RNA, which is the Royal and Ancient Golf Association in Europe. Play by all the golf rules except for two. Allows us basically to have coach or caddy line us up to hit the golf ball to our club and a hazard or bump, you know, for feeling. We currently have, I believe, around 72 members in our organization. Um, we are starting to grow by leaps and bounds. And one of the ways that we're starting our growth process by being in conversation to do this for conference. Um, we really wish that, you know, we were able to do a live session on the golf course so that one had clean the golf. Hopefully we'll be able to do that next year. And other than that, we like to other states organizations, you know, through the BBE programs or through the ACB or the National Association where we do clinics for juniors and for adults through rehab centers, through schools, and so even though we play a lot of golf, our main focus is on the growth of the game and the introduction of the game to the youth and to others who have lost their eyesight and they feel like they're no longer able to play golf. And we do this and This is how um, we have grown our golf position. We are worldwide. We have basically golf in every major country in the world, uh, from Australia, South Korea, Japan, England, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, Italy, South Africa. So we, we are able to go all around anything like that. Yeah, Phil. Unfortunately, your feet is kind of broken up there on us. So I'll fill in some of the gaps. As Phil was saying, we have three site categories that we – classify our golfers in the b1 category which is totally blind a b2 category which is able to perceive light uh to 20 over 600 
And then our B3 category, which is legally blind, 20 over 200 to 20 over 600. Uh, as Phil was saying, our main focus is to enhance the lives of the blind and visually impaired through the game of golf. And that includes our clinics, our introductory tournaments, our regionals that we have around the country, and also facilities such as veterans rehab centers and through our children's clinics, which we try to associate with either state or local blind and visually impaired junior programs uh, or schools for the blind and the deaf or similar type situations. Our organization, as Phil said, is uh, 75 years old, and uh, our main focus besides is to try to give back to the community in which we are playing our particular tournament. So as we travel across the country and around the world, uh, we look to try to enhance the lives of those with visual impairments through our programs across the country. So, Phil, back to you, sir. Sorry about that audio. I don't know what's going on here. The main thing about blind golf is what most people have to understand is you're a coach. So it's not, a, it's not really an individual sport like some other. So that being said, uh, any questions from anyone? Actually, I, uh, I'd like to jump in and thank both of you for joining us today. And uh, I just wanted to share a couple things. Actually, if, if one of you, first off, could maybe just give these folks a little taste of what we have lined up for them for next February in Las Vegas, <laughs> that would be great. And I also wanted to say personally, I, I can't believe that I got hooked on this particular sport, but a former vendor and a dear friend of mine, in fact, he was a mentor to me, Kurt Jones, got me hooked on this. So I have Kurt to thank for this, but you folks have a great organization. It's been a pleasure to be teamed up with you. And if you could just give us a little sample of what these folks have to look forward to, I've been trying to set the table for you during this week. So if you could just kind of give them a little peek of what they might be experiencing uh, next February when they're here in Las Vegas, forgive me, in Las Vegas and uh, get them out on the golf course, uh, maybe give them a taste of what they might be experiencing. Okay. As we had planned, um, we were going out to Stallion Mountain, which is uh, in Vegas. Uh, the promoter Brian, was very uh, accommodating. Um, we were going to have everyone come out to the driving range. We were going to basically break up in group and start to give them instructions, basic instructions on how to put off ball, to chip a golf ball. And of course, everybody loves is just getting on the driving range and hitting the golf ball, you know, with a club to get that full swing. Sounds like we lost Phil. So I'll continue on for there. So what uh, Phil was saying, we're going to try to get everybody out to the driving range during next year's show so that we can have a clinic for those who have experience with golf. It's going to be a fun time for those who have never hit a golf ball before. Uh, we have certified trainers who will be on site who will be able to facilitate uh, how to swing the golf club, how to move the body in order for that to happen. For those who are completely blind, it's a an experience of touching that ball for the first time if you've never uh, experienced the game of golf. 
And for those who are visually impaired, it's, uh, it's learning how to swing the club with the uh, little vision that we have, whether it be peripheral or uh, just center vision, and uh, to contact the ball. So we'll get onto the range with them, uh, give them that experience, and hopefully uh, get them interested in the game and uh, get them to where they would want to play more. Phil, I uh, don't know if your volume's back up now, but uh, try again. So to iterate what Greg said, that was going to be the clinic. The eventuality is I know that we would like to put something together with all the groups of the vendors, the sponsor, and get them out on the golf course and just, you know, have a, a good Vegas day, play some golf, and have good times. Great way to network and to meet others and to find, you know, kinships. Uh, golf is a lifelong game once start and never really finish that's the plan okay that sounds great uh phil from what i understood uh it was uh that we're going to try to get out on the golf course next year and that would be fantastic i think it would be uh, an experience that uh, for some would be fantastic and for those who do play the golf idiocy that we do uh then uh, it will be a great experience for us to get out there and uh have you know friendships that are going to last for a lifetime that's exactly the way that I like to see it is, is friendships that we will have from now on. Absolutely. And it's, and the, the post golfing experience is always good too. <laughs> We're not going to deny that at all. <laughs> we do have one hand raised. It's Kevin. Thank you guys for the introduction and everything. Y'all have a, a clinic in Tennessee where anyone can go and join to become a part of this golfing club. Yes, sir. What we have in the Nashville area is one of our uh, board directors uh, is located there in Nashville. And uh, they do hold a clinic there for junior golfers on a regular basis. Uh, And I'm sure that adults would be also welcome into that. And uh, if you can go on to the uh, usblindgolf.com website, and send either to the info at usblindgolf.com or just directly to me, to the president at usblindgolf.com. We will get you in contact with Mr. Chad Neesmith up there and the program that he has got going on in Nashville, if you're in that area. What area of Tennessee are you in? I'm in Memphis. In Memphis? Yes. That's a pretty good ways from Nashville. Oh, uh, yes. I tell you what, just send me your contact info and stuff, Kevin, and we'll be glad to try to find a golf course in your area that would, uh, uh, we have contacts all over the U.S. So we will try to get you in contact with a golf course and the uh, head professional at that golf course and uh, try to get you some help and some lessons. And then uh, as time goes on, we can get you in contact with our network of tournaments that we have going on across the country and see if there's something there that you would uh, be able to get to. That sounds great. I appreciate it. I look forward for it. I will contact Absolutely. you. Thank you for your question. Thank you. Do we have any other questions? We have no other hands. Okay. Could you repeat the website one more time? Yes, ma'am. It is usblindgolf.com. Dot com. Okay, usblindgolf.com. Yes, ma'am. Thanks. And that will get you in contact uh, if you go down to the bottom of the first page and uh, the contact uh, info is down at the bottom. You can uh, email uh, any of the board of directors or the president or just a uh, an open mailbox that we have there for information and those type things. And we'll, begin. we'll get back in touch with you. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Next, we have a break. 
and we're going to be hearing a video about Southern Teaming Partners. Yep. Hello, my name is Connor Lyles, the Southern Teaming so Partners. We are a division of Southern Food Service Management, a sponsor of the 2022 Sagebrush Conference. Very excited Thank about you. this conference as much as I know we all wish we could be in Las Vegas uh, this week doing all the fun things that Vegas will permit you to do. Unfortunately, uh, circumstances are not going to allow us to do that, but very thankful that we do have the opportunity to spend with one another virtually over the next several days to have the 2022 unmasked and reset conference uh, that we're all, I know, excited to be part of. Southern Teaming Partners has been, for the last 25 years or so, uh, supporting of, of Randolph Shepard. We initially began operations with, uh, 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 with Georgia Office of Vocational Rehabilitation in downtown Atlanta at federal centers and since have grown to work with a number of other state licensing agencies and vendors to form a number of very successful long-standing teaming arrangements, many of which have just been uh, recently renewed in the last couple of years, we're, we're, we're very happy to report and have obtained a number of new new accounts uh, the last year or two. It's been quite a challenging time, certainly with uh, through COVID. However, we we have uh, sustained our uh, operations. I'd say, on account of a, a number of of reasons, we've been successful in kind of navigating COVID due to a lot of the things in our history and what we've learned. Um, just to backtrack just for a minute, Southern Teaming Partners is part of Southern Food Service Management, which has been around now since 1951. Through those years, uh, approximately 60 plus years, we have operated at government facilities. And those range uh, vary from Department of Defense, Army facility, the Air Force, the Coast Guard, Department of Homeland Security and the federal law enforcement training facilities, uh, ICE for a brief period of time there through some of the Homeland Security uh, Border Patrol efforts. There have been um, the FBI, CDC, Government Services Administration, quite a number of other uh, government type facilities that we've operated and continue to do so today, thankfully. There are a number that are still closed on account of COVID and we are anxiously awaiting for the uh, unmasking and resetting to uh, occur. One thing we've, we've been very successful with is, and I attribute it to our longstanding and very solid relationships with a number of state licensing agencies and, and our teaming partners is to join together to speak to our government operations and our contracting officers to discuss the challenges that have been part of COVID and to set an understanding between them and ourselves of, of what really is feasible during these sorts of, of scenarios and to establish a trust with them that has enabled the opportunity for them to modify our contracts and our services, not to 
to recoup all of the money, let's say, that by any means you added an account that we may have you know, been able to, to share with one another, but to at least get things to where we're in a break-even scenario in a number of accounts, which has been very, very helpful to not only support the vendors, to support the employees, and to enable the business to be there so that when the people do return to work, we're ready, set ready to go. There are a number of other things I'd say. Uh, one, learning from history, the, the folks that came before us here at Southern really led the way through this. Uh, Fred Hafer, uh, VP of Operations, uh, retired a, couple, a few years ago. Um, Walter Berry, who was our president years several years ago. I was very fortunate to get to work with, with uh, Walter. Walt, his son, is our current president of Southern. Prior to Walt becoming that, Mike Barclay was. And prior to Mike, uh, my father was was the president. And those guys, they're the guys that were instrumental in establishing and developing the relationships that we maintain today with a variety of state licensing agencies, uh, particularly Georgia um, initially, and then from there, uh, numerous others. So I'm very appreciative of, of everything they did. I'm fortunate to be able to follow in their footsteps and have grown up basically, and Walt as well. Uh, we've spent our lives involved with Southern in some form or fashion. And as a result, got a wonderful opportunity to spend with all, all of them to learn from them. So 70, 70 plus years now, Southern, 60 plus as a government contractor, 25 or so, uh, Randolph Shepard. I will say I feel that our financial arrangements are as competitive as anyone in our industry uh, when it comes to teaming arrangements, that our um, ability to take and train and work with a variety of different vendors. We're, we're not a one-size-fits-all kind of approach to things. We, we address every contract uniquely and individually and work with that particular um, individual or state licensing agency and or facility to develop a training program that is, is successful, that will continue to be successful for years to come, and that is not um, o overstated and underdelivered. So we want to make sure that what we say we can do, we do. Our customer service is one of the most important things that Southern does and that we we ask our team members to keep at the very forefront of their mind is to deliver exceptional service to be there for our customer, to spend that time to connect. Because there, there's only a moment in time each day that we have to engage with our customers to deliver the exceptional service that we want to deliver. And we recognize that our team members are the ones that engage in that. They are the face of our company every day. And it's of the utmost importance, again, for us to train them.
give them the tools that they need in order to deliver that exceptional service and be the face of Southern that we truly want them to be. So we, we also, I will say, have very flexible contract terms, meaning we don't have evergreen contracts. We, if we're not performing properly, we want to give you a means of getting rid of us and finding a teaming partner that will perform to your expectations. Now, thankfully, that's not something that occurs, or I'm not aware of it actually occurring. However, should it occur, absolutely the tools are there within our contracts for someone to you know, terminate the contract as, as they should be able to do. Sharing financials is very important for us, and we do that at every account on a monthly basis with the state licensing agency and with our teaming partner, or I'm sorry, with our um, our vendors. As a as a good steward and as a as a, a teaming partner, that's what we do. So, again, thank you all. I look forward to virtually meeting many of you or saying hello to um, some some friends we've established over the last several years, and thankful that we have this opportunity to do this remotely and that the conference will go on. Again, unmask and reset, we're all about it. We've spent some time over the last fall with 100,000 people or so in several football stadiums that we operate who are already unmasked and I believe they've already kind of reset. Uh, we're looking forward to hopefully many, many more doing the same and having the opportunity to continue to offer great services for a number of, of clients and hopefully work with one another to chase down a few uh, really good opportunities together. So thanks everybody again, and uh, let's have a great conference. Look forward to talking to everybody soon. Uh, the next session is how prisons uh, have reset, and the uh, panelists are going to be Scott Egan from Minnesota, uh, Sherry Williams from Williams Vending in Tennessee, and Jerry House from Texas, Brook Army Medical Center Vending. That's that's correct. So I, I think this will be a really neat discussion on how the prisons have coped with uh, recent changes and how they are running their facilities currently. All right. Thank you, Linda. Just pleased to uh, have a couple of uh, co-hosts here on the panel. Uh, looking forward to hearing what they have to say as well. Jerry, are you comfortable in kind of uh, sharing with the folks who you are, uh, how long you've been in your program and some of the businesses you've had, that kind of thing? Absolutely. I graduated from the, from the uh, school in uh, 1987 and was assigned to highway vending. Uh, I was there for about 11 years until they closed it for remodeling. And um, at that point, I told my consultant I'll go anywhere and I'll do anything because I got to work. Uh, and they sent me to Lufkin, the Lufkin State School. We we needed a manager there. It was a temporary assignment. That was um, challenging. Uh, anyway, from there, I was the first uh, manager assigned to prison vending in the state of Texas. It became the Polunsky unit, which is where Death Row is now housed in Texas. And uh, I was there for about five years. And while I was there, I satellited, which is a temporary assignment. Four more prisons with uh, the, the manager that was assigned there abandoned them. In total, I was the Polunsky unit had the Polunsky unit and two more small prisons. So a total of seven prisons at one time. And from there, 
Um, I've been at the Brooke Army Medical Center for the uh, past 15 years. Terrific. Uh, do we have Sherry with us? If it's just the two of us, that's just fine. So I'll share a little bit about my uh, current prison knowledge. <laughs> I uh, do have three prisons here in Minnesota. Uh, let's see, they're medium and minimum security. One is in uh, Lionel Lakes, Minnesota. One is in Stillwater, Minnesota. And one is in Oak Park Heights, Minnesota. And uh, I've had them for, oh, I think I've been at Lionel for about seven years now. And um, I know Jerry has been at his prison for, was at his prison for quite a few years, so he can kind of relate to some of this stuff as well. But uh, uh, as we came through the pandemic, for the most part, it was almost business as usual until the, the pandemic got into the prison with such tight, small quarters that they keep prisoners in. It was a foregone conclusion that anything that got into the prison was going to have its run through the prison staff and the inmates. And um, so that did affect us for a little while. But as we moved on, uh, some of that passed. And uh, business, for the most part, has been back to usual, although we've had, you know, we, I guess what I'll say is that the prison has learned to deal with these situations. And I, I will say we had a lot of quarantine, a lot of stuff going on this last pandemic that came through, but um, we've been been able to be fairly successful. I've, I've had some really good months here the last six, eight months. And um, I hate to say it, but captive audience, but uh, yeah, you've got them. And even though we've had to, they tried to shrink the number of folks that were in because uh, they felt they could maybe do a little better control of the pandemic if they had Less units going, and they have closed one unit in, in every state prison. But, um, yeah, no, it's it's still good. One of my prisons, I did lose the visitors. Uh, half of my income uh, in the minimum unit was uh, the visitors that came in. And, and, unfortunately, they're telling me that they will not allow visitors at all anymore, period. Uh, we'll see, I guess, as we come out of this. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what that future is. There's still business there. Um, I try to maximize what I have, and uh, I guess we just go from there. Anybody who's looking at going into state prisons, I would uh, encourage uh, you folks to look at that and uh, get with your state legislatures and do what you need to do to get those doors open. We have an interagency agreement here in Minnesota that allows us into those prison facilities, and uh, it has worked well. I think we've got four vendors who are in state prisons, and... Uh, I know for myself, uh, some of us are probably more to the visitor areas, but there's a couple of us who are actually on the cell blocks with the inmates, and uh, every day at work is an interesting experience, but it, it's been good. Jerry, anything you want to add to all of that? Sure. I will tell you about the state of Texas. The prison system in the state of Texas is apparently quite a bit different than there. When the pandemic hit, Probably by May, I would say, of 2020, most of our prisons were not allowing visitors in, period. Probably 90% or 80% of the money comes from, from visitation here in Texas. So our prison system, where we have probably eight vendors, eight or nine, who are making a living at prisons, struggled and are still struggling. So we're back up to about 50% visitation on the average across the prisons. When I got into it, I had canned drink machines and our sales price was 55 cents and we were doing $55,000 a year, a month in sales. So there's a ton of money to be made, but right now in Texas, 
prison vending is not the place to be. As things open up more, I'm, I'm hoping that the, the guys who are doing the prison vending will get back to where they were. What's happening here in Texas is the visitors are being allowed Zoom virtual. visits, virtual visits. Virtual visits, yes. Virtual visits, yes. And they're being allowed to provide virtual commissary for them where they, where they can put some money on there and the, the guards will go get the something for the commissary so that the, the prisons are actually making money on that. So they're slow. They're slow to get back to normal. We're working on getting them back to normal. It's an untapped market, you know. Um, in a lot of states, there's a lot of money to be made for for blind individuals and who can do this job. Yeah, Jerry, is that is that still true that they're selling uh, canned beverages in in the prison? It depends on the prisons, but the maximum security prisons. I'm not sure if they if they've allowed bottles in or not. They don't really want them to take anything that's you know that they can actually seal up and and hold pressure or cause. They're very picky about what they sell. For example, they're not allowed to sell any gum in the prisons here in Texas. They're not allowed to sell like the soft candies like um, Skittles or Starburst because those things can be forced into the locks and made the locks inoperable. So, you, you know, the prison personnel can't necessarily operate the locks and get into the cells or get out of get the people out of the cells. So they're particular about what's sold. They're particular about what you bring into the prison. So whenever I had to work on my vending machines, I would have a, a little toolkit with a list of every item in that toolkit and give that list to the guards as I, as I went in, they would check it off. And when I came back out, they would check it off again to make sure all those tools were there. It's a different kind of world. I was there for about six years, I think, altogether. There were some scary things that happened. Like you said, it was interesting. But myself, I never felt unsafe in there. No. And I, I only can speak for myself, but um, again, I've told people I'm not bragging, but I am kind of a god in there because I'm I'm one of the few people that they actually want to see inside a prison facility. I bring them the goodies, so <laughs> they don't want anything to happen to me because they want me there every day. <laughs> yep. When they moved Death Row to the prison where I was there, and, and they moved it from Huntsville, Texas, to Livingston, there was a lot of people who were visiting people, you know, on Death Row, and you're saying. These people seem, you know, like nice, normal, average, everyday people. How do you have relatives on death row? My employees, I preach to them every day. Be be respectful to everybody in the prison. Your employees will make you or break you. And yep, yeah, we uh, we are not allowed to sell twelve ounce cans in our facilities. We're strictly at twenty ounce bottles, and that's that's fine. That's been an adjustment, but um, it's fine. But yeah, no, I, I um, I'm fortunate. I'm able to sell like. Uh, ice cream treats and sandwiches and that kind of stuff. So um, there's been some good business in that stuff. It's done well for me. So I'm very fortunate. Maybe we should start opening it up to some questions here. If anybody has questions on operating in a prison, we'd uh, love to answer them. So I'll just put that out. And if we have, do we have any questions in the audience? Okay. We have um, a phone number 901 area code ending in 612. Well, good morning, panel. Uh, Lance Morris from Tennessee. We're not in very many prisons here. We've got a couple of uh, federal prisons. Of course, now their visitation shut down and doing nothing. Uh, two or three state prisons. And the main money that they made there was from visitation. So, Oh, that's pretty well been shut down, but I'm curious if either one of your states are doing much with county jails. We're in over 50 county jails. As a matter of fact, the uh, county jails is kind of what saved our program during the pandemic because while most of the uh, various 
locations in Bending and very little food prep anymore have been shut down. The jails themselves with doing inmate commissaries have been virtually unbridled, very little setback on those. The question I did have, though, is does either one of your states have a limit on the markup in those prisons? Because in Tennessee, uh, not on the vending, but if you provide commissary to uh, prison inmates, not county jails, but prison inmates, they've got theirs capped at 10%, which makes it, uh, and that's in state law, which makes it pretty tough to do much with those. I'm just curious uh, either of you had restrictions on that or if uh, anybody else was doing county jails. I can answer for Minnesota. No, we're not in county jails. We'd love to be, but how do I say it politely? That's been a tough nut for us to crack. How's that? Um, I, I, I can answer in the state prisons, being on the vending side, um, it's a service to them. And there's no restriction on price. I know I get a lot of grumbling that they only make 25 cents an hour. But if you want to buy a bottle of soda, it's $2.50. That's just the hard and cold truth of it. You know, I'll charge five bucks for a cheeseburger. Uh, that's just how it is. So, no, there's no no restrictions on what I do on the vending side of things. But um, I, I don't know a lot about commissary. But what I've seen of our commissary here, I would not doubt that they there's a certain level that they're only allowed to charge up to. Uh, that is the nature of a commissary. So that's what I can answer on my side. How about you, Jerry? We are not in the commissaries. We're looking into that. Uh, we have on our ECM a dedicated committee to actually look into the commissary issues here. As far as the county jails, we are not. That is an excellent idea for us to try to get into those. I don't know that we've even thought about it yet. Uh, and as far as prices, our prices are set. We have a price list that has a maximum set of prices for prison vending. We have another one that has prices for all other vending. So prison has its own. Uh, right now, most of the prices are the same. We want the prisons to be, uh, the pricing in the prisons to be uniform so that if correctional officer goes from one prison to another, which they often do, you know, the prices are the same and there's no grumbling there. Uh, the prices are set just like a, you know, our maximum price in prison for a 20 ounce bottle is $2.50. So it's the same. I mean, you got to be able to make money or else there's no reason to do it. A lot of the way it works here is the inmates themselves are not allowed to use the machines. The guests use the machines and buy stuff for the inmates. And then the guards take it out of the machines, take it to the inmates who are, who are, I was more familiar with the high security prisons. The inmates are behind glass, you know, and they're talking on the phone. The correctional officers will give them the product and you know they can sit and talk on the phone and eat and drink uh, we do have some contact visitation where the where the uh, correctional officers will handle the product and give it to the inmates the guests buy the product are never allowed to actually touch it so it's, it's always the uh, correctional officers that handle the product and uh, i have a story if i'd like to hear it about part of the reason why that happened my wife and I were restocking the machines between visitation. A correctional officer brought a package of peanut M&Ms over, and she said, hey, this doesn't feel right. And my wife said, well, let me see. And she took the package, and she said, nope, it feels kind of squishy, and peanut M&Ms should never feel squishy. She opened the package. She said, I'll just get them a new one. She opened the package, and there was these little bundles of something in there, which turned out to be, of course, um, contraband. The visitor had painstakingly opened the package and replaced the M&M with something else, slipped it in their pocket, got inside the prison with it, and was going to give it to the inmate. So, you know, now the, the guards always 
handle the product. Interesting. Jerry, uh, so in your prison business, you just primarily dealt with cash then, right? Strictly with cash, yes. Okay. When I'm on the cell blocks with the inmates, we're using script and tokens. But if I'm selling to the guards, uh, the teachers, and some of the other folks that are there, then it can be cash. Just in those areas that it's only those folks that are allowed. So, yeah. So I got a little bit of both. But uh, I'd, I'd love to go electronic. I, if there was a way to do it, I, I, I would love to not have to worry about toting her own script and cash. That <laughs> would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, we're working. We have on our ECM here, we have a committee specifically set up to explore those options. And we've been hitting a lot of brick walls with that. Wardens are reluctant to allow electronics in there that they're not familiar with. It's been a struggle, but we're still working on it. Okay. I'll ask real quick if there's any other questions. We're getting close we, to our time to move we on. We do have two more hands. Um, okay. One, one is from Shirley Smart. I'm not Shirley March. Can you hear me? You're not Shirley? Hello? No, yep. that's okay, though. I'm Sherry Williams, and I'm supposed to be oh, on this good. panel today. But the dang <laughs> thing kept throwing me out and saying, goodbye. I've been on about 12 times, but it oh, keeps no. throwing me off. Well, I don't Sherry, know why. We're having rather abysmal weather here. Maybe that's why. Sure. Well, Sherry, can you, can you bring us up to speed on yourself a little bit here real quick and tell us about your prison experience? Yes. I have a commissary here We have in Davidson County. All our commissaries, even in the state of Tennessee, are a little bit different because every county has, you know, different criteria. So we have two locations in, well, we have four locations in Davidson. I have two and another vendor has the other two. I have about probably... Anywhere from a thousand to twelve hundred offenders. Um, we do have a process called Vend Engine that is partnered with Tennessee. I've been in this for forever, since nineteen ninety four. Well, in the program longer than that, I'm really, really old. And we've gone through every system. We partnered with Aramark for a while until two thousand eighteen, I believe, and then we switched. Some of our vendors had already at that point gone to Vend Engine, but I was one of the last holdout. I do not go gently into any good night, as my people will tell you. They finally convinced Davidson to go with Vend Engine, and Vend Engine works, I think, much better for most of the other vendors. In my case, Davidson County has a lot of monitoring processes in place, and they have a lot of other vendors who control or, or not control, but we actually do the trust fund for the uh, vendors. We put money in their accounts and transfer it from one account to the other when they move to a facility. The other vendor and I try to stay in communication as good as we can because Davidson is a very adroit mover of folks. I don't know what logic they use, but they'll have somebody in quarantine and then they'll just move the whole pod somewhere else. But I have nothing to do with that. What my job is, is to keep up with who moves where and try to get the money over to our other vendor as quickly as we can, because in the county, there's a lot of movement back and forth. The other vendors in the state do not have that problem as much as we do, because we have uh, Securus, which is a, a phone company and a, a virtual video thing, visitor provider. And we have Vendengine, who's also getting money. And then we're taking money from property, which most of our vendors, I think, have a kiosk that they actually go and empty. I don't do that. Property takes it and anything that's contaminated or in any way defiled 
I have to deal with it. And we've had some interesting things happen. We've had counterfeit money. We've had money with COVID and the bank didn't want to take it. And it's been a process. The trust fund is not my favorite thing. It's pretty accessible as far as visually goes. I cannot put money, I mean, I can put money back on some of the accounts if I can have somebody read me the money orders or whatever that's come. I can't do that by myself. I can put the inventory in by myself. I can do grievances by myself. We have another vendor here who, (laughs) she can do everything. I have to say she is the most talented person I've ever known. And I know less about prisons probably than anybody in the state, and I've been here longer and gone through more systems, but that's basically what we do. I put out fires, uh, make fires, and try to avoid fires. It has become the backbone, I think, of Tennessee's program, the commissary system, because we have remained fairly stable because the guys are there. They're not going anywhere. We've had to do a lot of dancing as far as being able to deliver and supply chain is more than decimated, but we're doing the best we can. Sure. Well, Sherry, thank you so very much. I don't know if we have any other questions in the audience, but uh, with your system, I think we'd like to have you back uh, at another point. I'd like to drill a little deeper into your system and find out just how it works. And uh, uh, we'd love to learn more about what's going on with it. So, Well, thank you. And I'm sorry your system kept pitching me out. (laughs) I'm just just tickled you made it. So thank you for joining the panel. This is going to conclude our time. So Sherry, Jerry, thank you both for joining us. Your information was highly valuable and we appreciate it. And I will toss it back to our, uh, our moderator. And I have to say hello to Sherry right quick. I don't know if she remembers me or not, but I've harassed her many a time at the auctions with Gordon Dykes. <laughs> but uh, she's quite the lady. Our next presenter is, or the next presentation is to do with the communication and leadership. And we have Sandra Benson from Summerlin, Nevada Toastmasters Club uh, discussing communication to and with others. And... I'm summarizing again, I apologize, and how, how that affects uh, future leaders, um, I believe. Do we have Ms. Benson? Is she on? I am here. Thank you. You are very welcome. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for having me. I'd also like to introduce my guest. He's a fellow Toastmaster who will also be presenting with me today. His name is Rick Sparrow. We are both in Summerlin Toasters together. And today we're going to share a little bit about the club, what it can do for you. We're sorry that you guys aren't in Las Vegas with us today. I know you're also sad that you're not losing any money. But we have a great joke about Las Vegas. How do you leave Las Vegas with a million dollars? You come with two million dollars. Yes. So nobody leaves here a winner. And so we've saved you money by meeting virtually. It's a win-win for everybody today. We're going to start our presentation. I want to turn it over to my fellow Toastmaster, Ricky Sparrow. He's going to talk about the history of Toastmasters. And then I'm going to pick it up. And we're going to talk about modern Toastmasters And we're going to do an entire presentation for you about how you personally can benefit from it. And at the end of our presentation, we're going to have a question and answer in case you're curious. Ricky, over to you, my friend. Thank you, Sandra. And first, let me begin by thanking everybody for coming in again. We wish we were seeing you guys in person, but you guys are much financially better off. 
It, we joke about it all the time, but these beautiful lights don't stay on for free. With that, Toastmasters has a, a very rich tradition. It's been around for a while. Some people love history. Some don't. I'm amused by it. So I'm going to touch base on a few important key dates. Ralph C. Smedley actually created Toastmasters 117 years ago in 1905. That is a long time ago. And what it was is he was opening up the YMCAs and he realized our youth didn't know how to communicate. They needed the structure. They needed tools to be able to communicate. So in turn, he created Toastmasters. A Toastmaster typically gives a toast. So he created that in 1905 unofficially. And then in 1922, he moved to Santa Ana, California. And that's where he officially created Toastmasters. Our first club, club number one, is in Santa Ana, California. And he realized in Bloomington, Illinois, the same problem with the youth was the same problem he had in Santa Ana, California. The youth couldn't communicate. They didn't have the proper tools. So in turn, he created Toastmasters in California. And it was the original, the traditional one, the official. In 1935, our first club outside the United States, which was in Victoria, British Columbia. And that's where we kind of evolved to the name Toastmasters International. Up until that point, it was just a U.S.-based corporation and now international. In 1973, we opened it up to women. I wasn't born in 1973, so I didn't understand it, but I did go to school. I have read history books, and we have a lot of members today that tried to join in the 70s and couldn't because they were female. So 1973 is a key date that women really stepped up the male's game when it came to public speaking. In 1974, so you figured in 1922, there was 24 members. In 1974, there were 60,000 members, 3,000 clubs through 41 countries. It really expanded. In 1985, we had our first female president, and Helen Blanchard was not just our first female president. She was our first female member in 1973, so it was fitting that she became the first female president because she broke the mold in the early 70s by becoming the first female president. We're going to take a big jump to 2018. Our headquarters always stayed in Santa Ana, California. And in 2018, we moved to Inglewood, Colorado. And that's where our headquarters are currently based as of today. With that, Sandra, can you cover the last four years that have kind of really evolved and changed Toastmasters to what it is today? Thank you, Ricky. Yes, I'm going to give you an update on where we are now with members. There are 300,000. Yes, that's what I said, Three. 100,000 members in 149 countries and close to 16,000 clubs. Now, that's pretty impressive. In Las Vegas alone, we have 90 clubs in Las Vegas. And as you all know, with COVID and Zoom meetings, many of the clubs now internationally have become virtual meetings. So if you've ever thought about joining Toastmasters, want to visit a meeting, you can log in and go into any club around the world. Now, you may ask yourself, well, how much does Toastmasters cost? This must be pretty pricey. The good news is it's 45 bucks. 
plus a $20 membership fee. And they collect that every six months. So it costs about $120 a year. Really inexpensive. It's great therapy. The slogan for Toastmasters is let's break barriers and not budgets. Now, I feel like I'm the sales rep for Toastmasters. So I'm going to give you the David Letterman top eight list of why, why it's great for everybody to join Toastmasters. And I'm going to count backwards from eight. It's going to be a struggle for me. I'm older and I never count backwards. So number eight, it builds self-confidence and self-awareness. Number seven, you gain a competitive edge in the workplace for all of those self-employed people, which is the entire audience. Number six, you practice your writing and speaking and presenting skills in a group setting. Number five, you work on your networking in a small and supportive environment. Number four, you enjoy unlimited personal growth. Can you believe I was an introvert before I joined Toastmasters? No, I'm just kidding. Number three, you maximize your potential and we all have unlimited potential. Number two, you build leadership skills. Ricky's going to be talking about that. And number one, the number one and most important reason is to improve your public speaking skills. Now, I'd like to follow that up. Some of you may have an absolute fear of public speaking, but remember something, you're all in business. And the one thing that is absolutely required is you have to talk to people. It's an absolute given. So Toastmasters can help you improve your communication skills. Maybe several of you have businesses with multiple employees. Have you been a frustrated employer lately? Has COVID given you cotton mouth when it comes to talking to your people. Toastmasters gives you an opportunity to improve your communication skills. It's not just about public speaking and making speeches. It's about learning how to speak to people in general, which as business people, you can totally relate to that. I'm going to turn this back over to Ricky. Ricky's going to share personal stories. We're going to talk about what brought us to Toastmasters why we're here and how it's improved our lives. Ricky, back over to you. Thank you, Sandra. So Sandra made a little joke about her being introverted and Sandra's highly extroverted. With me, well, it's not true. I am very introverted and I've always been introverted. So Toastmasters for me has really pulled me, not all the way out of my bubble, but it's pulled me out enough that I can actually stand here and speak to you guys. I still have nerves. I still have sweaty palms, but I'm here. And based off my personal story, I would never be here. So you got to realize when I was a child, we had the second largest family in our our town. I grew up in a farming community, so I can't say a second largest family is very big, but we did have a population of 25,000 people. Our family, and I don't know, maybe you guys had it too, but you had a hot seat during the holidays. It's where they put you in the front of the whole family and Santa hands you the present and you have to open it up. I literally hated Christmas because of that. I love my family, but I did not want to sit in front of them. So I feel like my trauma began when I was just a wee one all the way up to, well, my thirties. I never did get used to it. With that, we'll fast forward a little bit. My first Toastmasters meeting, I met a member who had told me nobody has ever died from public speaking. <laughs> I begged to differ because I felt like I died every time I stood in front of somebody. So for about 30 years prior to that specific conversation, I always thought I was dying when I was in front of people. Never got used to it. I, I will never forget 
my freshman year of high school, English 101, we had to just introduce the person next to us. Simple enough, right? I mean, my God, I went to school with the girl for three years prior to that. I knew her name. I knew my name. I knew the basics of what I had to do. So I got up to the podium. I stared death right in the face. Death one. My cheek started to twitch so bad that I couldn't even see the class. I could feel the redness and the sweat in places that I didn't even think you could sweat from. Needless to say, I didn't die physically. Emotionally, uh, we'll leave that one up for debate. But for the next 20 years, listen, 20 years, I would drop all classes that required me speaking. As you can imagine, college has a lot of speaking opportunities. And I was always told it's an opportunity to get to speak. Again, I beg to differ. I didn't go back to college until my mid-30s. That's a long time to skip school. And I don't know about you guys, but the older I get, the slower my mind gets. So school is a little bit harder in my 30s. Naturally, I had to see a hypnotist to go back to school. I mean, right? Why not? If I had a mental block, what's better than a hypnotist to tell me I don't have a, a mental block to go back and be able to just say my name in front of people? In that span of time, I was a leader in a corporation. I could speak to my team just fine. Whether my team was 100 people or 150, I was confident. I had no problem talking to them every single day. The second I had to go to a corporate meeting, that was it. I literally had to write my name on the palm of my hand. That's a name I've had since birth. I mean, it never has changed. But I would stand up. I would black out forgetting my name. So I'd look at the palm of my hand and read my name. It's crazy, right? I mean, I've had it my whole life. If you're wondering how hard it is to run a business that requires you speaking to people, when you lack the confidence to speak to people, well, it's hard. It's really hard. And that's where Toastmasters has changed my life. It's given me the confidence to speak and more importantly, be myself and be a stronger leader by having a belief in myself. With the confidence from Toastmasters, I have stepped away from corporate America and into the world of entrepreneurship that now requires me to speak, and Sandra said it, speak to people every day regarding real estate and my other path of speaking to addicts on how to be a better leader while battling addiction. That kind of leads back to the speakers we had before with the prison system. Eh, that, that's where I'm going to help <laughs> If I had never stepped into Toastmasters and more importantly stayed, I would still be a good leader, but never a great leader in corporate America. Instead of being true to myself and helping others by chasing my dreams, Toastmasters, it's given me the self-confidence and the ability to power through my childhood, my midlife trauma that began as a child, and again, it carried through my adulthood. Do I think about it all the time? No, I don't. It's one of those that is subconsciously buried that the second I get in front of people, I'm like, I got this. And then I look at everybody, and I'm like, I don't got this. But Toastmasters, again, we get that practice, and I get to continue to get up here and speak to people 
and start to believe in myself. I don't have to believe in everybody around me. You have to believe within your believe within yourself. And the key to leadership is believing in yourself before you can believe in your team. And to do that, you have to have confidence. And being able to go into Toastmasters, a safe space, and you'll hear us talk about that, a safe space has given me the confidence in myself. In turn, I can now support others, help others, and get others to believe in themselves as long as I'm believing in myself. So, again, I'm very introverted introverted and Toastmasters has cracked the shell, maybe put some windows on my invertedness so I can see out of it. But with that, Sandra has a little bit different story, an amazing story, but different than mine. Sandra, how much story? Yeah, thank you, Ricky. Thanks for sharing. Great story. Everybody has their story to tell in Toastmasters. And what brings you to a Toastmasters meeting? Everybody's motivation is different. My background is that I'm a professional musician. I've been on stage most of my adult life. So getting up in front of an audience and speaking is something that I'm definitely not afraid to do. But what brought me to Toastmasters was that I'm a mom of an only child. And guess what happened in 2017? She left the nest. Yes, I became an empty nester. And when my daughter left, not that I needed more to do because I'm self-employed. I have two of my own businesses, but I'm also the type of person that feels that it doesn't matter what age you are. You should continue on paths of self-growth because as you age, you're either growing or you're dying. And I would opt for the latter. I want to keep growing as an individual and I want to feel that I'm still relevant So I thought I was in my mid fifties at the time. And I thought maybe as I was approaching, you know, the sixties and that word called retirement, maybe in my retirement years, maybe I'd think about doing some public speaking. I'm also an educator. I'm a piano teacher by day and I'm a great motivator. It's one of the things that I have a natural ability in. And I thought, well, if I can motivate people to practice and learn an instrument, I have that same skill to motivate people to have a productive life. And can I turn that into a skill that I could monetize in the future? Toastmasters gave me the opportunity to do that. I contacted a local club. And what was really interesting about my experience was they knew that I was coming. And the minute that I walked in the door, several people there welcomed me to the club. It was very welcoming. It was a very safe environment. That's the one thing about Toastmasters is that it offers a place to practice a skill that maybe you're not too confident in. But the good part is there's no judgment there. Everybody comes to Toastmasters with their own agendas. But the one thing that everybody comes in with is the desire to get better at something. And the beauty of a Toastmasters meeting, it's a safe space to do it. So if you totally screw up, and you forget your speech, there's no condemnation. Nobody's going to tell you that you made a mistake because we've all been there and we've experienced that same sense of failure and humiliation. But it's never a sense of failure. What we look at it as is that you're growing. And every time that you decide to grow and step out of a comfort zone, 
you're going to make mistakes. But with mistakes comes learning. And, and when you learn something new, it helps you grow as a human being. And it gives you self-confidence. As I said in one of those top eight reasons why you join Toastmasters, whatever your motivations are or whatever your fears are about joining a Toastmasters club, I would encourage everybody in this room to step into a Toastmasters meeting And the beauty part is right now you can step in virtually and there can be a safe space. Oh, and by the way, you can tell them, I don't want to say anything. You can tell them that. You can just be a quiet observer. And I know that all of our audience is visually impaired and you need to let them know when you go into a meeting that you're visually impaired and they will make those adaptations for you as a guest. So feel free to speak up. Again, there's no judgment when you go into a meeting. With that, I'd like to continue the story about what Toastmasters does beyond the meeting. Where most people don't know this is they think they just go to a Toastmasters meeting and you get to do your speeches. And what is the networking of a Toastmasters meeting? We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I do want to mention that Toastmaster has this what I consider to be online learning. And anybody that's ever taken a college class online, Toastmasters has an entire program outside of its regular weekly or bi-monthly or monthly meetings. And this is where members really benefit because people that have never done any public speaking think, okay, what do I do next? And that's where the online learning comes into play and it's called Pathways. There are 11 paths. Now, what's really interesting, when you sign up to be a Toastmasters, you go online and you take the the assessment. And there's a questionnaire of like 20 or 30 questions that they ask you about what are your what are you looking to do in Toastmasters? I have three paths that I'm presently in. My first path was leadership development. And my second path was engaging humor because I think I'm kind of funny. And then my next path is strategic relationships. Within those paths, there are typically five levels. And in each level, there's assignments. There's maybe five assignments in level one and two. And as you get more advanced in your paths, the assignments get a little more um, adventurous would be a good word for it. So in the first two levels, I'll give you a for example. In the first level of everybody's path, one of the very first speech that you're going to do is called a, uh, what's it called? It's called a, an icebreaker, an icebreaker. And basically you get to do the narcissistic thing and talk about yourself for four to six minutes. It's a great icebreaker because you get to tell people all about you and introduce yourself in a period of four to six minutes. That's the icebreaker. Now, in my path that I'm presently in, my my leadership development, I'm in level five. And one of my paths or one of my speeches that I can do is I can do a public, I can act like a public speaker. So this for me, this event today is a speech for me that's going to actually count towards my level five. And in that is to go out And be a public speaker, which is what I'm doing today. This is my official first public speaking gig. So thanks, everybody, for letting me achieve a level five accomplishment today. Of course, they say it's 20 minutes long, but Ricky and I have been blessed 
to come on and speak to you for a longer amount of time, which is great for me and Ricky as well. I'll give you an example of some of the other things that you can do. In my engaging humor path, I'm in level four. And so one of those, you can pick and choose what you want to do. But one of those speeches is to create a podcast. Have have any of you used pod? Do you listen to podcasts? Have you ever thought to yourself, I'd love to, I'd love to create a podcast where maybe you'd love to be a business consultant for budding entrepreneurs. Maybe you have a personal love of gardening. Maybe you thought you'd love to do a podcast for gardening. Toastmasters gives you opportunities to create things. I was just online this morning and I thought this one was really great because I was going to like give you guys a little plug. Oh, how to manage a difficult audience. I was just going to say, oh, this is such a tough audience, but you guys are a piece of cake to talk to. Um, Another one of the assignments was write a compelling blog. So that would be kind of a cool project to do. I started writing a blog about four years ago, and it's a motivational blog called The Motivate Me Club. Because, again, I thought maybe one day I want to be a motivational speaker. And so creating a blog is another assignment. And once you've started your blog, you can create a speech based on your personal experience of what that's been for you, and you get to create a speech on that. So Pathways is a really interesting online training that you get to do outside of a weekly Toastmaster meeting. And it's not just, they they just don't hang you out there to drive. You, You are guided. There's lots of resources online that you can look into. And I know that there is, I've talked to one of my friends in Toastmasters who's visually impaired, and they have a zip drive, if you have visual impairment, that you can order from Toastmasters, and they will send it to you and you plug into your computer, and it opens up the entire Pathways agenda and learning program that will help any of you that, if you intend to get into Toastmasters, it is, an, it is a tool for you to use in Toastmasters. With that being said, and we'll save it for the question and answer, if you have any questions about this Pathways program, we'll be happy to answer any of those questions. With that, I want to turn it back over to Ricky, who's going to talk about all of the opportunities in case you've been ever wondering if you could be a great leader and you want to put your toe in that pond of leadership. What are the opportunities for any of you that would like to try out a leadership role? I'm going to turn it back over to you, Ricky. Thank you, Sandra. I appreciate that. And great coverage on Pathways. Pathways is a really great program to give you guidance on where you need to be going. Um, Again, we're already afraid of public speaking. So Pathways, it lays it out for you. And being everybody that we're looking at right now, well, I'm looking at my camera, but a bunch of you see me, you guys are all leaders. You're entrepreneurs. You're leading yourself, whether you have a small army or you have yourself. And I'm not going to lie. The self-employee is the hardest to deal with. I can deal with my team. Dealing with myself, it's a little bit harder. So you guys, at the end of the day, you're all leaders. And this allows you just to take your leadership to the next level. So when you come into a club, you got to remember, this is a volunteer organization. So no matter how bad I am, they can't fire me. They can't dock my pay. So it's really a great opportunity to step up into a leader role and not worry about repercussions of, oh, my God, what if I'm wrong? It's okay. You're going to be wrong. That's why everybody's there is to support us. 
So each club has very similar structure throughout the all our countries that we're in. Our, our structure is somewhat the same. I'm going to start with the bottom of our, our, our leadership team, and it's our sergeant of arms. The sergeant of arms role for me, and this is strictly my opinion, is one of the most important for the simple fact you heard Sandra say it when she went to her first club, they were it was warm, welcoming, everybody knew her name. That sergeant of arms is the first person you see when you come to a club. They carry all the tools to carry on the meeting. They carry our lectern, our flags, our banners. They carry all our paperwork, our new membership packets. They, they carry our tools. But really, they are the first person everybody comes in the club sees. So they want to see that smiling face or that energetic voice. That's what the sergeant of arms does. It's a great role. That person, just they have to be reliable. Because there is an expectation that that Sergeant Arms is at every meeting. Our, our second role is our secretary. Every meeting has to have a secretary to take notes. How do we know what went on a year ago, two years ago? We, we are a, a nonprofit organization. We still have to have notes. We have to have files. So our, our particular club is 20 years old. We can go back 20 years and pull the notes from any one of our meetings. And it's simple. You just jot what went on? Sandra was president. Sandra brought this. Whatever they deem necessary, that's what the secretary kind of writes down, just tracks it for us. Our, our next one is VP of public relations. For me, that's a hard role because I'm not tech savvy. They run our social media. They run our meetup page. They run our Instagram page or Facebook page or whatever digital platform you're running to advertise your club. That's what our VP of public relations does. They get the word out. Because then you got to pose the question, how many people right now that are watching this have ever even heard of Toastmasters? Maybe a, a majority, maybe not. I, I don't know. It all depends how good a job are the public relation managers for the clubs in your vicinity. Are they getting it out? So that's kind of what they do. We rely on our younger generation to be able to run our social media for us because they're good at it. That's what they know. Our next is our treasurer. Still an organization. we got to have money to pay for meetings, supplies, awards. Our treasurer tracks all that for us. They track our dues. They let us know who's paid, who hasn't paid. They, they're kind of, they're the gatekeeper of our funds. Hence the word treasurer. For me, the <laughs> VP of membership is another highly important role because they're that person that when a guest comes, the VP of membership greets them. They give them a guest packet that explains everything about Toastmasters. What do they need to do? What's their next step? But more importantly, they follow through. They reach out to that guest the next day or a couple days later and really answer any questions they have to help them feel more comfortable. We don't public speak and we don't go to Toastmasters because it's the fear of the unknown. That VP of membership reaches out and helps that guest go from unknown to known. So they're really there to answer all those questions. They follow through to get our guests to come back and really just join us. VP of education, they have, if you're not youth, they have the hardest role because the VP of education oversees our club and pathways. They keep all of us motivated on achieving our paths. The paths aren't hard. It's not like you have to go to school and sit down and study for hours. But with that said, they're easy enough to do. They're even easier to not do. So our VP of education, she keeps everybody or he keeps everybody motivated and pursuing their paths. 
and continuing to speak and take on roles. Our VP of education, she's really good at voluntold. I always thought I've used to volunteer. And then I realized I'm voluntold a lot. And that's what the VP of education does is it gets us to step out of our comfort zone and keep us on our path. So she just tracks the education for our club. The most simplest role, and I can say this because I came into Toastmasters and within two months, I was our club president. Sandra said earlier, she's a great motivator. She is. She motivated me to become president in an organization that I couldn't even walk through the front door in. It's because you have a support system. It's okay to fail. So I took on the president role and I say it's simple because I did it. It's about your team and it's about people. As the president, if you take care of your team and you take care of your people, they're going to take care of you. And in turn, they're going to take care of the club. The president, you're the face of the club. Everybody looks up to you. And the simplistic reality of it is you're looking back down and finding out what do you have to do to support your team. As much as everybody's looking up at you, your team is doing everything for you. You just have to be that that motivated person, that ball of energy, that can-do person. When things are going sideways, they look to the president to be able to say, hey, we got this. This is what we're going to do. This person's going to step up or whatever you have to do, or if somebody's struggling through a speech, they're there to help. At the end of the day, you can't fail in this organization. We only learn. And again, I, I will continue to always say the president's the easiest because I did it and I did it successfully. I had an amazing team below me. I had Sandra on my team and we had five others based off everybody on our team. Six of our seven were new to Toastmasters within a few months. We managed to take that club to be the most successful club in Las Vegas that year. So it's not about what you know. You can come into Toastmasters knowing nothing. And the teams build your leadership skills. And those are so important for you as entrepreneurs to be able to take that leadership skill and structure. And you can take it out and apply it to yourself. Apply it to your team. Apply it to your business. It's a a great way to practice. And not worry about letting anybody down or failing. If you choose to step out of the club above, there is more leadership roles above it. Sandra's an area director. I'm a division director. There's district director. So there's a lot of roles if you decide to step out of the club and really expand your leadership and grow yourself. You'll learn the more leadership roles you take on, the better your business is going to go. It's going to grow. It's going to be smooth. And subconsciously, you may not know why, but it's because you're becoming a more confident Mm -hmm. leader. With that, Sandra, do you have anything to add for that? Yes, I I certainly do. And I would like to tell everybody, how did we get picked to speak to this conference? Because we're in Las Vegas. And we know that the the conference was supposed to be here in person. And because of COVID, everything went virtual. But we were actually approached by a gentleman that you probably know. His name is Randall Crosby. And Randall Crosby 
He's a member of the RSVA, and he's been a Randall Shepard vendor in Florida for 30 years. He's enjoy. He's a Toastmaster. That's how Randall Crosby found us. He came onto our virtual meeting, and he's like, listen, I need some speakers from Toastmasters. Who wants to do it? And Ricky and I, we volunteered to do it, and he just wanted everybody to know that he's now an area director, so he's an upper leadership in Toastmasters, and he enjoys giving speeches at his club and receiving evaluations so he can improve as a speaker. And Randall, this is his personal quote, Randall wants all of his vision-impaired friends and colleagues to enjoy the same benefits that he has found in Toastmasters. Look, I know it's pretty scary because you guys are like, I can't be a public speaker. I've never done this before. Do you know that statistically that people would rather die than give a public speech? So we get it. It's scary. But here's what I want you to know. And this is a brainchild. Randall wanted everybody you know, to know this here today. There is, if you're afraid, if you're a little tentative about doing this, there is an online club. And I don't know, can we put this in the chat or come some? I think you guys are recording this. It's called the VIP. That's visually impaired people. Online Toastmasters.com. Yes. It is the brainchild, and I, and I think they call themselves light-seeing people. It's, it's really a cute little quip. But somebody, somebody created a club for visually impaired people online. So you don't need to get there. You just shine, you get online, just like you got in online today. They're held via Zoom. You go online, and I want to say that 98% of the club is visually impaired. So you will be in good company if you're a little fearful. You can step into the club, and you can just be a silent observer. You don't have to talk. You just step in, observe the club. Now, with that being said, if you're more of an extrovert, I was introduced to a man called Bobby Blackman, who is also visually impaired. Now, here's an amazing story about a guy. He decided that he was a public speaker, and he wanted to be able to practice more. So he, bless his heart, found a Toastmasters club close to his home. This is prior to COVID. Went to the meeting and started speaking at the meeting. Let them know that he had a visual impairment. And they have timing. Rich, Ricky's going to talk about timing. But here's what's so amazing about his story, Bobby Blackman. He had been in Toastmasters for three months and decided to enter the they have contests every year, and it's the International Speech Contest. This is how amazing his story is. He made it to the finals. Do you know how difficult that is to make it to the finals? We are talking about the competition is international, and he came in third place. So all of my friends out there that have a fear of public speaking, and if you're visually impaired and you have a bigger fear of public speaking, Bobby Blackman is the poster child. The fact that he made it into the finals, being visually impaired, and here's what his amazing story. I said, Bobby, how did you do it? Did you have cards? Were you were you reading Braille? Did you have technology? What were you using? He goes, I memorized my speech. I went up there and I spoke from the heart. He is a motivational speaker and a beacon of hope for anybody that's ever been afraid to speak in front of people. 
Bobby Blackman is the epitome of a man who lives with courage in his heart and steps out of his comfort zone every opportunity that he has. Ricky, I'm going to turn this back over to you. You can let our friends know online how they can make it in any of a virtual meeting or a live meeting at Toastmasters and suggest some of the ways that they can make their other Toastmaster friends aware if they come in with a visual impairment, how they can make Toastmasters work for them. Back over to you, Rick. Awesome. Thanks, Sandra. I appreciate you. So we were fortunate enough to meet two great people that really taught us how our clubs can accommodate visually impaired. So let's just go back to uh, the Toastmasters club. It's VIP online toastmasters.com. So again, if you want to check out one that is primarily visually impaired, that is there for you. But what it is, when you come in and you give a speech, all our speeches are timed. Our evaluations are timed. Our table topics are t- Everything we do is timed. That helps us structure. But with that said, we hold up a green card at a certain time. We hold up a yellow card at a certain time. And we hold up a red card. If you're visually impaired, well, you understand it better than me. That's pointless. So what they've taught us is when you raise the green card, you just say green, the yellow card, yellow. And the red card comes up, red. So what it is, is you heard a voice while you're speaking. In turn, it, it kind of interrupts your speech, but it shows you where you are. So you know how much longer you have on your um, speech. So there is ways to go about it. What it comes down to is communication. When you guys attend a, a, a meeting, whether it's in person or if it's online, all you have to do is let the club know what do you need? Because everybody's needs are different. And we're not mind readers. So in my club and Sandra's club or both of our clubs or well, Sandra's club, she's president. She doesn't know as members what we need or what can she give us unless we speak up. So the key is communication and don't be afraid to let us know your needs or whatever club you go to. You just have to tell them, hey, I'm visually impaired. Can you help me with X, Y, Z? Our clubs are so over the top to help people because that's what we do. It's an organization of helping people believe in themselves, but we've got to have the right tools. And it comes down to you guys communicating to us on what your specific needs are. We have visually impaired. We have physically impaired. There's a lot of different people we cater to, but it comes down to knowing what does that specific person need. So you just got to communicate. Let us know. Hey, this is what I need. You'd be hard pressed to find a club that will not do it. With that, Sandra, what else can we do for them? Well, you know, Ricky, I think we've come to the end of our educational and hopefully interesting and hopefully motivational and hopefully you all want to go out there and check out a club. (laughs) And listen, folks, here's the beauty of virtual meetings right now. I just thought about this today. Say you're learning Japanese as a second language and maybe you want a place to practice. Guess what? They have Toastmasters clubs online in Japan. Now, I know there might be a time difference, but you could chime in and maybe Japanese is a second language. You can go to a Japanese meeting or maybe you want to go to Germany because you're working on your German skills. The beauty of Toastmasters right now, it has become a definitively mingled international community. We have clubs here in Las Vegas that half of their membership is out of the country. So the beauty is, is you can meet people around the world 
via Toastmasters and learn how to communicate with anybody in any country. With that, Ricky, I think we're at our question answer section. That's what my clock to my left tells me. So is there anybody that has questions? And I believe the moderator will unmute if you just want to raise your hand and let us know what your questions. We will do our best to answer them. All right. One of our panelists has a question. Uh, Travis Beasley, you may unmute. I am so sorry. I I don't have a question. I'm I'm the next panelist, so I I'm sorry. You sure you don't want to ask me something simple, Travis? Kind of throw me a softball, like what my name is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's your name? <laughs> it is Rick Sparrow, and I didn't even have to look at my hand. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> Thank you. There are no other hands at this time. Okay. Well, hopefully, I'm hoping that we've motivated some of you to step out of your comfort zone. I, I can only tell you how Toastmasters has improved my life. It certainly has made me a better speaker, certainly. Oh, and by the way, we didn't talk about some of the little things that they do. So one of the things that they track while you're speaking is how many times you were, if you do ums a lot, where you start your sentences with so's or because's or and, and they count it. And then they give you accounting at the end of your speech or your table topic. And it's not to make you feel bad. It's really to make you aware of some of those filler words that you use when you're speaking. I think, Ricky, this would be a fun thing. One of the, one of the things that we do in our meetings is we do table topics. And a table topic is an impromptu section of the meeting. Somebody has made the table topics master, and there's usually a theme in the meeting, and they create questions, and then they call on random people. I don't know. You think we can get any of our people to volunteer to answer a question? What do you think? Shall we try it, Rick? Can our moderator help us with that one? If anyone wants to volunteer, please raise your hand. Alt-Y on the PC. Option-Y on your Mac. The raise my hand button in the middle of the screen of an iPhone or iDevice. And star 9 on your telephone. Okay, so I'm going to ask the first question. Valentine's Day just passed. What did you do romantically with your partner for valentine's day any volunteers i will volunteer okay scott you are on my friend let's hear your fabulous answer my fabulous answer and the question was what did i do with someone special for valentine's day was that the question correct ah what did i do special i uh my wife and i had a heart-shaped pizza and we both enjoyed it greatly. Uh, you know what? That sounds pretty cool. I like that answer. Now, Scott, just so you know, if I had timed you, it probably would have been like a 15-second answer. So we would have told you with table topics, your minimum would have been 30 seconds. So you would have had to keep going with that. And, oh. Yeah, so table topics is all about teaching you how to think on your feet. That's the beauty of table topics. Ricky, do you want to ask a question? I, I do want to ask a question, but before I ask my question, I want to throw out there, when you come to meetings, so we spoke about one of the, our speakers memorizes his speeches. That is not necessary. You guys, and he had said that there's people that will bring note cards that have Braille on them. So you do have a lectern at the front that you are able to bring your speech on Braille and read from it. 
he didn't recommend it because if you drop them, it kind of, for him, it created an issue. But don't think you're, you're coming into having to give the speech without the proper tools. You are able to have your note cards and get up there on the lectern, lay them out, and be able to go through them without having to memorize it. Because I, I struggle at memorizing, but having notes really does help you. So, again, I, I felt like I, I might have skipped over that when I was going over the timer. That's just one more tool to help you guys. So with my question, and one thing I love to do on Toastmasters is we, we typically bring a bag of coins with us. And I just pull, draw out a random coin. So I have a coin right next to me. The year on the coin is 1985. What is significant happened in your life in 1985 that you can remember? We do have a phone number who responded to the previous question. Maybe they'll oh. respond to this, 865-244. They can respond to either one. I'm good with that. They apparently are not uh, unmuting. So does anyone else want to raise your hand? I'd like to hear from Artis because she is the reason we are here today, Miss Artis. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, it's a good question for this group because in 1985 is when I joined RSVA. <laughs> and it has been significant in my life for the last... Uh, 30 plus years. Great answer, artist. I'm glad we caught on you. Yeah. <laughs> She's all hiding behind her mute button over there. I'm like, can't turn that mute button on. <laughs> Thanks, artist, for answering the question. With that being said, I mean, any more questions from the group? Any more queries for Ricky and I? I do have one question, and you you mentioned it. I think I heard you briefly touching on it. So as you can tell, I'm not afraid to talk. However, I wish my speech was a little better. But uh, coming from northern Minnesota, this is what happens. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about writing because I can hold my own in speech just fine, but my writing skills are not where they should be. Talk to me a little bit about the writing aspect of what you talked about. Yeah, this is what's really interesting about Pathways. When you're preparing for whatever speech that you're working on, in the resources, there is an actual worksheet and they talk about writing a successful speech you know, how to start out the body of the speech. There's actually worksheets for you to work through and start to construct your speech. Now, with that being said, you can take that speech into a meeting. And the beauty of a Toastmasters meeting is that you will get instant feedback, or they call it an evaluation. So there's one person that's assigned to you, and they will give you an honest feedback on ways to improve your speech. Now, not everybody will deal with the content of your speech, but they certainly will give you helpful feedback on how to improve it. And here's the best thing, is that the next time you can continually work on the same speech and go back in and take that new and improved speech and go back in and get more feedback each time. Nobody's going to write your speeches for you, but what they will do is give you helpful information on how to improve it. Okay. And we do have one raised hand. Ronald Flormata, you may unmute. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. As you may have heard, I come from the islands of Hawaii, and my question, well, really not my question, but one of the observations I get from speakers as a listener, I hate hearing the words, you know, you know, every sentence they say, you know, and I feel upset when you say, you know what I mean? Of course I know what you mean. 
what is your opinion about that? That's one thing Toastmasters addresses is anytime people have, and we call them crutch words or filler words, and it really what it does, instead of taking a good pause, we panic and we throw a filler word in there such as, or you know, and maybe that person doesn't know, or maybe they do, but it's really, it's the mind starting to panic and fill that void. That's where our evaluations come into play. And a good evaluator will catch on to that and give you tips and tricks of how to reword it to get away from saying, you know, you, you know what I'm saying, right? Well, no, maybe they don't. But our, our mind uses that as a filler word or cr- again, crutch words. But that's the evaluation portion that helps our speakers stop doing that because you figure it's not the first time they did it. That's a habit that they built in over a lifetime that has to be broken. And so with continual speeches and the evaluations, the evaluations are the key to Toastmasters and it's the key to people's growth. And it's bringing up little filler words just like that to stop it. As we go through more and more meetings, you listen to more and more people speak, you realize a lot of us have crutch words that we rely on. And it's the evaluator's job to bring it up. So that's where the evaluations, again, become very important to the success of that speaker. Hopefully that answered the question. If we have time, the next person up is area code 615, ending 429. I've really got a lot out of this meeting and uh, learned quite a bit. One of my questions is, on these Toastmaster clubs, I Googled some in my area because I'm actually in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, because I missed that part of the segment, but are these free to join? No, no, there is a fee. Toastmasters, though, is pretty affordable. It's $45 to join, and there's a $20 membership, a new member fee. So it runs about $65, and then you pay that twice a year. So it's about $125, $130. They put club fees in there, too, but it's never going to cost you more than $130 for the year, and you pay bi-yearly. Totally worth the money. You'll get far, you'll get your $65 worth. I promise. Right. And then I have another question about, uh, actually, this would affect commissaries and everything else, but can we, as like the Department of Human Services and other organizations, can we work with Pepsi and Coke? I was a former meat manager for a long time before my site started to go, and we used to have like buyers for the meat department. Could we as like a whole like say the whole state of tennessee go approach pepsi or coke because that's one of our biggest problems here in the state of tennessee is our prices when we buy them from pepsi and coke are just so high but could we get to work with these companies to try and get lower prices for us blind vendors Uh, scott egan here you know that's a great question but i think that would be better served at another time uh, we would have been looking for sure. you last night to bring that to the table and have a discussion on it, but uh, we certainly can. I actually tried. That. We'll take that on at another point. How's that? We need to keep moving uh, on with, with our presentation, but thank you for bringing that up. Hey, Scott, if there's no other audience question, I have one, I guess it's a repeat question. There was something that was brought up earlier, but I yep. did not hear where to find the international versions. I am a French speaker, and I'm interested to know if there is a club for those who speak French, and how would I go about finding it? Ricky, I'm going to let you answer that. So if you go into Toastmaster International website, it's such as the gentleman that just spoke, he Googled the meetings in his area. You can Google a meeting in any province you want, 
And when you find whatever club you want to join, when you join Toastmasters International, all our pamphlets, all our coursework is in whatever language you choose to select. So it's okay, being, so if I wanted to do French and German, I could? Absolutely. You would just select. So like when we scroll through, we've got to scroll through a fair amount of pages to find English depending on the packet. But it's pretty much every country you can think of and almost every language you can think almost every language you can think of, your packets are going to be in that language. So you wanted to do French and German, then absolutely your packets will come in French and they will come in German. So you're not having to read them in English. But but in, in addition to that, there are Toastmasters meetings happening in those countries. So if you go to Toastmasters International, you can find out where those meetings are being held. And like I said, most of them right now are on Zoom. So you would be able to join them, international meetings where they are all French speaking or all German speaking. And they're speaking the languages. So if you have confidence in those language and you want to practice, because we've had several secondary English speakers come in. We had a woman from China who joined our club because she wanted to work on her English skills. And she had enough skill in English that she could understand it, but wanted to actually work on her vocab and sentence structure. And so Toastmasters gave her that opportunity to work on her English speaking skills. So it would be the vice versa if you wanted to work on your French speaking skills and you just join a French speaking club. TI, Toastmasters International is a primary English meaning contests are done in English, but everything else is whatever language you want to choose when it comes to your coursework, it comes to your clubs you join. Um, it's very diverse in that aspect. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that information. I just wanted to pop in here uh, for the gentleman who had other questions outside of what the panels were. The networking thing at 3.30 would be a great opportunity for anyone with questions uh, related to any other topics. So please join us at 3.30 Pacific for that networking time. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Artis. Great thought. Are there any other questions or are we? do we need to move to the next session? Our time has expired. Yes. I think we should move on, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think so too. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. It was great fun. Thank you, guys. Enjoy the rest of your guys'. Come to Vegas and lose your money. We need it. We'll be there next <laughs> year. We'll leave our money everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thanks. You guys enjoy. Okay, that, that was pretty cool. Artists, is there any door prizes or anything that need to be done before I introduce the next deal? I don't believe so. At the end of the next topic, then we'll have door prizes. Thank you. Our next panel discussion is from a perspective from the other side, and um, vendors speaking on their experiences in a predominantly white male-dominated profession. Our guest panelist is Travis Beasley, who is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I'm a little biased because he was my classmate when I went through the vending program, and he is top-notch. His uh, vending, um, his micro-market is uh, Music City Market uh, in Nashville. As to the best of my knowledge, he's the only one listed. So, um, Travis, are you on? All right. Well, let's go then. Again, my name is Travis Beasley. As Linda explained, uh, she and I were, we, we were the only two in our class uh, in Morristown. We both graduated uh, in October. I think it was 2015. It was 2015. It seemed like, it such, was. A, yep. seemed, seemed like such a long time ago. But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, after that, I started temping uh, a mini market inside of the Nashville public bus station, which is called MTA. I have been here for six years now. 
thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, I have also just started uh, just temping uh, a micro market in the Andrew Johnson building, uh, uh, which is about a couple of blocks from here. Uh, it's a micro market with some uh, with some vending machines uh, included. I thoroughly enjoy being a part of the Randolph Shepherd Act. The Randolph Shepherd Act has extended me, my family and I, such a wonderful lifestyle. It gave us a a leg up. And I'm so grateful for that. But entering into Randolph Shepard as a black man, I was a little bit intimidated because uh, not saying that we are different, but we are different culturally. We we have to admit that, you know, you know, there there's some things that I'm accustomed to in my culture that you guys are not accustomed to, even though they might be similar, especially if we live in the South. But at, at the same time, you know, I did feel a little bit intimidated. Uh, the one thing that I did do is that I had to fight that, you know, going into anything intimidating, you know, it, it, it kind of a disservice to yourself. And the thing is, I had to overcome that intimidation. Of course, you know, being being in Morristown, Linda helped me uh, overcome that. Uh, our, our instructor, Ralph Stelsman, because it kind of shocked me that there were no more people of color in the class. And then, and then I found out there, there's even less, you know, there, there's not a big representation of people of color in the program, which was a very big shock to me. But at the same time, it was not a deterrent. And first of all, I had to fight that intimidation. Just because I, I was a black man did not mean that I could not succeed in my business. So I had to fight that. I had to fight that mentality. I had to fight. And everything that, that I'm talking about that I had to fight, I had to fight things within myself. So anybody, you know, if you are a person of color, hey, we, we got to go in, into, into this thing positive mentality, and we have to fight that intimidation. Second thing I did was uh, I networked. I found people. There, there was another manager in the building next door to us in the Andrew Jackson building at that time. His name was Brian Wooten. I used to make frequent visits up to Brian Wooten just to network. He's been in the program. He was in the program years before me. Uh, when he, when Brian was at Andrew Jackson, I went up to network with him. I also networked with uh, the people that I did my internship with. Uh, I networked with uh, uh, my food prep person that that I did my internship with. I, I networked with uh, with my vending internship instructor. And to this day, they they are so helpful to me. Matter of fact, uh, Troy Rogers, I got to give him his roses because. Anytime I have a problem with a vending machine, Troy is very knowledgeable. And all I got to do is pick up the phone. And he, he's going to answer whether he has time or not. And he's going to ask me what's going on with the machine. And he's going to try to tell me. So networking really helped me. And then another thing is, you know, I had to be willing to work hard. Just because I'm a part of Randolph Shepard, many people, I think many people that come into Randolph Shepard, they think that this is just this glorious thing. I can make a bunch of money and it's going to fall in my lap. No, it's not. <laughs> it is hard work. It takes a lot of hard dedication. It takes hard work. And just because we are visually impaired and just because we, some of us are totally blind, that doesn't mean that the people throw pity parties for us. No, everything we get, we have to work for it. And I had to realize, man, I got to work hard for this. I have to work hard. I have to give this everything I got because I had a family that depended on me, even though I was visually impaired. 
I had a family that that uh, that are dependent on me. And and the thing is, I had to have that hard work. I had to have that dedication. And the thing is, you know, again, with networking, you know, that hard work. I know sometimes asking questions, we might feel like we're, we're I'm being bothersome. Or, ah, I might not need to call them, you know, you know, you know, because I'm I'm being bothersome. Hey, you need to be bothersome. You need to learn everything you can get. And again, that helps you socially. It helps you uh, overcome you thinking that just because I'm in this this field with predominantly white people, hey, I am a part of this. I'm I'm not second class in this. You know, I, I, I am a part of this. And the thing is, is that is that with that hard work and, and that dedication, you know, uh, it's worth every bit of it. I guess that's all I have from my perspective. I have a question, Linda. I appreciate uh, Travis's remarks, but I would like to hear also, I know women are really a lot less numbers in the Randolph Shepherd program. And could you just say a a little bit about, you know, women entering it and some of the difficulties and some of the ways they can overcome coming into the program? Yeah, and Tennessee, I got to give them credit, seems to have a decent sampling of ladies in the uh, the program, but it was a little weird that when I went up to be evaluated, the class ahead of me was four dudes, and one of whom I'm still still very try to stay in contact with because another wonderful human being, and the the other gentlemen, two of them have passed away, so kind of hard. But it was weird for me when I found out that it was just going to be me and Travis, and. I wasn't uncomfortable because I've been a teacher for so long. I felt a little weird just because it was such a small class and how was it going to go? And I was a little irritated because um, I was not allowed to use a screen reader plus magnification and so on. It was just, you know, that was a personal issue. But it was just weird because I didn't have any female counterparts uh, to run things past. And I mean, Travis was great. He would listen and, and we would, you know, bat things back and forth. And he helped me understand some stuff and, you know, things that I was looking at from a totally different way. He would give me a different way to look. But yeah, as far it's just a little weird how I think the women, and this is just my perspective again, are perceived as, or this is how I felt, subordinates. It's just, uh, again, the second class citizen feeling and I'm not saying it wasn't the instructor Ralph is a wonderful human he never did that he never differentiated he expected everybody to put in the same amount of work and you were supposed to do there was no exceptions no it was straight across the board this is what I expect and this is what you will do which was fantastic but I'm talking about in terms of upward mobility and uh, some of the other type gatherings I just got the impression that there's a them and there's an us and like I said, there, there's a few ladies that I, I, I have talked to, and I, I got to know a couple that are um, in Upper East Tennessee that are, again, very competent, very lovely and successful. But, you know, the others, they're just kind of scattered, and they don't seem, with the exception of one that's on the committee who has reached out to me several times and we have talked, it just doesn't seem like um, there's any cohesiveness between the female vendors, you know, a support mechanism. I know I'm not articulating this well because I'm really not sure how to verbalize what it is that I'm perceiving from the program, but I know that there are things that need to be done to make it a more palatable choice for females. 
and for other diverse populations, simply because I don't feel like they're being reached out to. It was thrown at me as a, well, you can always do this, uh, like a last resort thing, and I don't view it as that at all. I thought it was weird because I was like, this is the last thing I ever expected to be doing, but it's hard work, like Travis said, and you have to be willing to put in the work. And there's a whole lot of responsibility and a lot of networking is necessary. And I will be the first to admit I'm not very good at it. But uh, still, I I think there is more that could be done for for reaching out and supporting the smaller populations. And I think that we're losing potential and, and ignoring a whole segment of population where there's some very capable people that are hiding in the shadows because nobody's putting any light over there. And it's just, it's really depressing. And I don't even know how to begin to approach it because there just, just seems to be no interest in it within the organization itself. You know, and designating it as a predominantly white male, I can sit here and name you 15 white males to the anything else that I, I know because there are so many of them. And, I, and nothing against them, but, it, I mean, it is definitely a weighted profession. And, um, you know, I would personally love to see more diversity and, and support for it. Thank you, Linda. I really appreciate that. Artist, can you hang on just one second? I want to address something real quick, and then we'll jump into that, okay? I do want to thank Travis and Linda for both of you sharing your hearts on this. I really appreciate it. And uh, Travis, I would love to get to know you a little better. I'd like to pick your brain a little bit at some point, if that's okay with you. And Linda, you and I privately, we need to have a little discussion too. I, I, I've got some things in my mind I'd like to talk to you about. So that's all I had. But thank both of you for sharing those those thoughts and inspirations. So thank you. Hey, thank you. No, I really appreciated it too. I'm I'm just trying to keep track of the clock. <laughs> yes, and, I, and, and speaking of which, I'm about to be invaded so I'm going to have to at least go on mute. I'll still be listening because when they come in, it's going to be like a hurricane. So um, <laughs> thank you all. I, I appreciate the opportunity. It's my first time moderating. I don't feel like I did hideously, but I, I definitely know that it's not something that is um, in my bailiwick. So um, oh, thank great. you guys. And okay. I, I will still be listening. Okay, okay. Thanks. Thank you, Linda.